Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another very special episode of X's for Podcast, the show we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me sniffing around the interwebs over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. We're going to kick off this amazing episode with a look at the incredible Bob Quinn, not just his most recent X release, Knights of X, but a number of his most recent titles. It's always a pleasure to have Bob on, and we hope you guys enjoy this experience just as much as we enjoyed making it. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, you might want to subscribe and follow over on Twitter at X is for podcast. Don't forget to stick around after the interview for some amazing news about the future of X is for podcast that you won't want to miss. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a very special look at X's for Podcast from this side of Otherworld. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me traveling the multiverse over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey, everybody. It's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter at AOA, where I am going around talking about the best ice cream I ever had. Our country's going to need her one day. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX, worshiping Jean Grey every day. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And I'm Jonah. If you want to find me skulking around the crooked market, you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive the experience, just like our special guest, incomparable, the multifaceted and talented... One Mr. Bob Quinn. It's Bob. It's Bob. It's Bob. It's Bob. It's Bob. It's me. It's me. I'm here. I can't believe it. I found you on the internet. I have escaped from the dungeons of Otherworld, where I have been creating art, and I finally made it back. And I'm here. I'm here now. I can talk to you. How are you? How is everybody doing? We're doing great. Super fantastic. Yeah. Doing really well. I'm glad to hear it. Not hanging up in a dungeon anywhere. Kind of comfortable. No, don't. Yeah. There you go. That's great. Get get one of those gamer chairs that all the kids have with the lumbar support. This is the height of comfort. Tremendous. Well, that can only mean that we are here on X's for Podcast to celebrate the incredible release of Knights of X by celebrating the incredible artist who made it possible. Bob, this is your third time on our show. We have, you know, trapped you here in our dungeon multiple times. And so I am so thrilled <laughs> to have you back because you have released some unbelievable books in the time since you were last here. And I couldn't be more excited. And I I want to start off with the book that I think was one of our big runaway hits when it came out, which was Death of Doctor Strange, Black Knight X-Men. We really, man, that was such a great book. That was such a fun time. And as a guy who usually works on the fringe of the X-Books, what was it like drawing the Treehouse team in such like a central location? That was really wild. They were just like, oh, Sai's doing another book and it's got X-Men and Doctor Strange. And I was like, oh, okay, sweet. And then as you saw, the X-Men men were in it but like they were giant and huge and creepy and spooky <laughs> it was great it was one of those situations where like i didn't super know what i was getting into when i agreed to do it but then you know obviously as i learned from way of x you just trust inside and then 
and you know he gives you something great to draw as is consistent with that he did and i got to do it it was great it was a ton of fun it was the first time i actually got to do something sort of spooky because normally you know like up until that point it'd been like a lot of captain america and like you know teenage superheroes with champions and stuff like that so delving a little bit into the horror was actually pretty fun and something i would like to do again one of these days i think i would love to know what it was like coming up with character designs for all of the treehouse x-men as these incredibly creepy i mean like honestly they're really horrifying like it's not just a little spooky they are sometimes like gene is tough to look at and in the best possible way just what was that like (laughs) it's very much the same way that it was when i was actually doing the hellfire gala designs for way of x where like sai will come in and he'll kind of give me just like a prompt he's like i think it's like this and I wish I had prepared and had them with me, but I don't, unfortunately. It was like Polaris is the iron priestess, something like that. And then I was like, oh, okay. And then he's like, each one of them had like their little thralls that were hanging off of them. And he'd be like, they kind of float around her like in a sort of like balloons, I think. And then from there, I just kind of went, okay, well, chains are cool. Kids love chains, apparently, if you listen to Donnie Cates and Ryan Stegman. So I was like, all right, so she probably has some chains on her and stuff. She's a priestess or, you know, so I kind of like gave her sort of like a nun habit, but made it kind of gross and spooky and covering half of her face. Yeah, You know, you just kind of play with it. That one actually though uh unlike the hellfire gala stuff i kind of had to design on the page because i was doing that in between something i think i didn't have the most time so it was kind of like all right and i threw him up on the page and i was like is this what you were hoping for <laughs> and then luckily everything seemed to be on track so i didn't have to go back and change anything drastically best kind of accidents are the ones that work out mm-hmm Bob Ross, one of my heroes. Happy accidents. You know, every time I hear J.H. Williams III never made a mistake, he just drew it into the art. I'm always like, for my mistakes, to look like that. <laughs> I've always been a big fan of Gene Colan, who said, never look at a page after you turn it in, because you're invariably going to see all the crap you screwed up. <laughs> Bob, you mentioned really loving doing like a spooky thing and not getting to do a lot of spooky things. I am a person who loves spooky things. It's a lifestyle. Kids do, in fact, love chains as well as me as an adult now. I really appreciated seeing all the dangly chains hanging off everything in this. I like the spooky component. I was rereading Way of X earlier. Like Way of X number one, I kept coming across this feeling that there's such a stylized and animated quality to the kinetic energy you bring to your art, like Nightcrawler bamfing in over Venice and stuff like that. The expression work you do is like, it is cartoon cartoonish and i don't say it like to be negative because cartoonish is for me a great thing in comics like it's a really huge strength of your work it has this feeling that reminds me of like some of my favorite animated cartoons like justice league unlimited and stuff like that but when i read this black knight one shot i keep thinking of like the simpsons treehouse of horror is there something like a kind of like horror influence that you drew from from this that was similar like an animated thing it feels like you would be a person who would appreciate really good animation is there a horror thing you're gravitating to that one was fun to draw because so much much of it was about it's like London has a lot of haze right and it's very foggy and what I liked about it was being able to sort of imply all the backgrounds but I don't actually do a lot of intake of horror content which is sort of weird because I do like drawing stuff that's kind of spooky but the thing of it is is like I like the kids Halloween version of spooky and not like the big gross that's exactly what I was thinking of. Not scary, but Halloween, like Monster Mash. Yeah, exactly. I was walking through the lab late one night, right? Like, that's the kind of stuff I like. You know, like Disney's Haunted Mansion version of being scary, right? Let's doom buggy it up. Yeah, right? right? Like, I don't want to actually horrify you. I don't like that kind of stuff. Like, when it's super gross, I, like, kind of turn off. I'm like, I don't, don't want to look at this, right? But, like, if it's sort of creepy, sort of spooky, fun for kids, like, that's the kind of stuff I like. Because to your point, like, my introduction to X-Men was actually through the cartoon and after I I saw the cartoon I started reading some of the book I watched Batman the animated series growing up like all of my comic books started as cartoons the same for me yeah exactly see look you know what's going on you're, you're 
you're smart. You know, I think I've said it on a couple of podcasts in the past where like my actual introduction to comic was through Mad Magazine and all that stuff is super, you know, gross and exaggerated too, right? I think that's sort of the direction I come at comics from. And so when people say, oh, this is cartoony, I go, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying to do, stupid. Yeah. You do <laughs> so I, well. It, the expression of every face is like incredibly fun to look at. Like there's a lot of physical comedy there as well. I don't know if I'm supposed to, but I do usually go for the joke. <laughs> there's something coming up in Knights of X. I definitely lean into a goofy face and I'm like, I don't know if it's ruining the moment. So, but nobody said no, so I'm going to keep it. I know we talked about it earlier. I'm a bigger fan of the monster rap, the hit follow-up to the monster bash. <laughs> Hopefully someday Bob can uh, show us what happened to the Transylvanian twist in comic form. The first thing I you know, saw your art in was Way of X, and then we've seen it in so many subsequent things and before that I very much enjoyed. Way of X and specifically like Knights of X and have very different vibes. Mm. When you're going through your artistic approach and like the kind of theming, do you have a different of like how you think you're going to tackle it and how you want to handle it or is it all like I'm gonna I know what I'm doing I'm Bob Quinn I know how to do art and I'm gonna do it this way I hope you're that sassy all the time yeah you react to me, stupid. I'm the best. I know how to do the best comic book. Uh, maybe this is bad, but I don't over-intellectualize it too much. I just kind of go, okay, <laughs> time to solve the problems of this page. And then I just kind of go at it. I dive straight in and I try not to overthink it. I try not to overcomplicate it. I try to figure out what's going to be the best way to tell the story. You know, I'm looking for that tone. I'm looking for the mood and I'm looking for what's going to best execute that. Like for Death of Doctor Strange, like I said, I did a bunch of, searching of pictures of like London right the London fog and stuff like that and just that in and of itself has such a mood to it like these photographs because you don't see everything right and not seeing everything is a good sort of hallmark of well done horror right it's the stuff you imply that can be the most horrifying because you know you let the audience's brain sort of fill it in so that's what I tried to do when we were dealing with a lot of the stuff to find areas where I could use essentially what is natural to the environment in a foggy London that's going to allow me to imply the fact that the buildings are sort of gross and made of goo and have weird spires sticking out of them, that it's going to allow me to imply the fact that, you know, rogue body is actually made out of uh, thousands of humans fused together, right? Like, and kind of let the audience fill that in and get grossed out by themselves, because it, it saves me having to do all the work. You grossed yourself out, stupid. I didn't do anything. <laughs> you just played yourself, but that's... Um... Yeah, exactly. It's... <laughs> It's something that I love because when in any artistic medium, whoever's working on said medium and project, I love when they give the audience enough credit to fill in blanks and to do it themselves. And I think something I always appreciate about your art is that I never felt like spoon fed with what I'm supposed to be getting out of this. Hmm. I have never heard that in reference to my work before. I try to give you what you need in order to understand the story as best I possibly can. So I'll take it as I'm doing it right, I guess. <laughs> Well, yeah, definitely complimentary. Well, so I don't know. It's funny because it's like, you know, I'm on a I'm on an art discord with a, a bunch of other artists who also make cool comic books out there. And I get the same sense from everyone, which is basically nobody knows what they're doing. And we're all just kind of like trying to figure out the best way to piece this stuff together and make sure that we're telling the right story, but also doing stuff that looks cool and isn't exciting. Everybody kind of has their own strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, everybody's usually pretty complimentary and pumping each other up and stuff like that. It's such a dark 
science. This comic book drawing that like you think you're doing it right, but nobody's ever really sure. <laughs> All art has to do is make you feel an emotion. And as long as it's done that, it's art. And you can call it whatever you want. You can say if it's good or better. <laughs> this is going to be the most random pivot to a question. And it doesn't Let's have go. to do with anything. What is your favorite color? Growing up, it was blue, but it has actually shifted to green in recent years, which is weird because apparently children hate green toys, which is weird because the Ninja Turtles sold, but in general, green toys don't sell. But I like green these days, but I don't color with it ever when I color. <laughs> do you do a lot of coloring your own pages for a hobby? Because I totally would if I was in any way artistically skilled. <laughs> I've been trying for the last year to have Marvel let me color my own stuff, but they haven't let me do it yet. But I'm going to break them down one of these days. <laughs> we mentioned this earlier, but the cartoon thing of it all, I have a tendency to leave a lot of decisions open to the colorist because I don't fill in. I don't do a ton of cross hatching. When you don't do that, you kind of have to leave it up to the sensibilities of the colorist. But as I'm drawing it, I will usually have a really strong sense of how I think I want it colored. Sometimes I get surprised. There's a couple colorists who really seem to understand how to work with what my line art is. And then there's a few that like I'm not super duper crazy about. I mean, not to take anything away from them, because obviously everybody's under the gun all the time when we're making these things. And, you know, everybody has to work at such volume. I totally understand that you don't have the time necessarily to crack open my brain and see what I was thinking. So all that is to say that if I were to be able to color my own stuff, I'd be able to just get straight to what it is I want because I already know what I want, right? As opposed to have to go, okay, okay, I see what you did there. What if we did this to take it up a little closer to what I was thinking? <laughs> How fun was it creating the designs for the anti-Hellfire Gala, the Crucible? Like, oh my God, like in the Onslaught book, it was so amazing. Ah, oh, like I love everything you did with it. Yeah, that was another one of those things where Cy was like, everybody's kind of wearing like these sort of somewhere between like punk rock and some sort of weird, like I guess kind of S&M stuff. I don't know. It was just supposed be like this sort of awful evil part violence part debauchery kind of thing but you know it was like people biting each other and cutting each other and doing all kinds of weird stuff so like i tried to mix all that stuff together in a way that wasn't going to be like caught by disney s&p <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know it, it, you're always kind of skirting that line of like is this too weird is this too gross I try to make books for the whole family as much as I can you know I want to make something for everybody but like when you're doing all that stuff you're just kind of mixing and matching all these different wacky ideas and stuff like that and then putting them into a zero gravity MC Escher painting thanks Simon <laughs> It's beautiful, like how, like, it's a little edgy, but it's still family friendly. Like, everybody's hot, but like in a pure kind of way, not like an X rated kind of way. I love it. Good muscle structure. Ah, okay. I'll take it. <laughs> it's the way you draw, like, taut muscle over, like, excellent bones. Onslaught Revelation's wild. Thank you. <laughs> My absolute pleasure. And one of the things I love is the wide berth of stories you've told at this point, because you've also done Cable Reloaded, mm -hmm. which was absolutely not the same kind of thing. And now you're over. <laughs> Over on Knights of X, and one of the things I love the most about Knights of X is that there's way too many characters in it in all the best ways. Like, Teeny was just like, I'm gonna pack the script. I'm gonna hit, if she's getting paid per letter, she's really doing herself a favor because mm -hmm. the character list on that book is immense. And I was wondering how you find the voice when you jump from Cable in Space to Psylocke in Otherworld. And, you know, it hasn't come out yet, but like our coverage of Knights of X, one of the things we talk about is like, Saturnine looks like a 
lot of other blonde ladies. And that's not like a bad thing. But then how do you find your that blonde lady? Like, how do you find your interdimensional space Karen in a sea (laughs) of so many similar white Anglo blonde ladies? Well, you know, for me, at least what I try to do is look back at what's been done previously, you know, and and I'm trying to synthesize as many different versions of it as I can, right? So it's like, I'll find some version of her. Pepe Larraz always does this thing where every sort of sassy Karen woman tilts her head back and looks down her nose at everybody. I try to capture some of that stuff. And then I'm looking at like, you know, obviously because this is the follow-up to Excalibur, what I had to do is I, I spent a bunch of time looking at what Marcus Toe had done and like trying to integrate some of that stuff. And it's like, sometimes he'll do something and go, oh, that's cool. But then I'll see sort of what he was working off of. You know, it's like, it's one of those rock and roll guys go, yeah, I, I love Eric Clapton. And then somebody goes, Eric Clapton, yeah, he used to listen to Robert Johnson, right? So like you keep going back and back and back in, in the artwork to, you know, see what everybody was influenced by until you see. It's Aerosmith doing honking on Bobo. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, so, I, I'm with you. So yeah, exactly. So it, you can call her Lady Honking on Bobo if you like. That sounds perfect. <laughs> <laughs> First off, I, I love that Kylan made like a reappearance. Like, oh, oh my, my God. God, yes, ten thousand points, yeah, Nathan. Best like, question, Nathan. Holy... Best question. No offense, Bob. Nathan just won the episode, Bob, but you come in a really strong second place. I accept it. Thank you. First mention of Kylan wins. <laughs> but besides my love of Kylan, like I really loved the page that we sort of got to see them when Roma kind of shows Betsy what's going on. I don't, um, and in where we see Richter and Shatterstar in bed, I was like, oh, thank you for drawing that. Those sweet boys. I know. I was like, ah, thank you so uh, much. What, are we really going to describe both of them as sweet boys? Hey, let them be sweet boys. Okay. They can be sweet boys <laughs> to each other. They're just happy, gay, sweet, vinegar, piss, anger together. It's really yes, wonderful. Toge- yes. They work nicely together. There we go. <laughs> what was it like getting to like kind of create those little like scenes on Krakoa? Like almost like a nice little like vignette of what they're doing when we're not watching. Teeny gave me a good script that was like more or less told me where everybody was sort of in media res, right? So it was like everybody's waking up in bed. Some of them have their significant other with them. Some of them are on the treehouse team going off and fighting Cordyceps Jones or whatever, right? So <laughs> a lot of what my job is is simply extra executing what is written on paper. (laughs) I wish I had a better answer, but that was pretty much what that sequence was. Obviously trying to communicate. There are a couple, right? So if something wakes you up in the middle of the night, maybe a little hand on the shoulder. You okay over there? You know, just thinking, just thinking about relationships, thinking about two people who care about each other, thinking about what happened in the middle of the night when there used to be earthquakes when I lived in LA and I'd wake up and I'd put my hand on my wife. (laughs) You just mentioned people waking up in the middle of the night and thinking about their loved ones. So this is something that's been like gnawing at the back of my brain since okay. Way of X number one. Right at the very beginning, one of my favorite panels is Xavier is woken up in the middle of the night by Onslaught reaching into his brain. He has a panic moment and he looks over to his bedside table and on it is a bunch of framed pictures of his past loves. We mm-hmm. have Lalandra of the CR, we have Gabrielle Holler and her child with Xavier ripped out the frame. And we have somebody else who I have long been completely and assuredly convinced is Magneto. Can I just get some confirmation on that? I don't think it was Magneto. Hang on. Oh, my heart. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do this. There was supposed to be I'm a pretending you never said that before. Where we could all have a good time together and then I, all I did was make you sad. 
who is it then? Because it seems to be a masculine figure in what looks like a red or a magenta like thing around their neck, kind of like Magneto's 80s outfit. I don't know who it is. <laughs> My God, I got to tell you something. I don't remember who it is now. I understand. You never revisit a comic. It's dead and buried. No, it's not even that. I've been really, really busy. I really haven't had a day off since October because I've just been on like a really, really crazy schedule. And my brain has turned a little bit into toothpaste. I could probably find it for you if you gave me like 20 minutes to go dig up the old scripts. (laughs) It sounds like you've been overworked. And honestly, I believe everybody deserves a rest. You take time off from the struggle. One of the things I love most about Knights of X is just the varying sizes of the team going from Shogo at the biggest to like Bay being a very large wife and then just Megan being like a tiny lady. And the thing that I think is just captured on every panel when the team is together regardless is like comparatively the sizes always work perfectly. Is that like a significant struggle on this book because it's just this wild range and they're all over the place from shot to shot? It is an absolute headache. I can't even tell you. Every time that stupid dragon shows up, I'm like, how am I going to fit this thing in here? I mean, you killed it. The perspective is perfect because there are so many scenes where Bay's in there and she's huge. But like, yeah, she's a, you she's can enormous. tell. Exactly. She's got, that, she's got that huge headdress. She's got all that stuff hanging off of her. And she's cool as hell. Basically, what happens is, is like, I will sort of grid out sort of where I think the camera is going to be. And then it literally becomes like moving puzzle pieces around trying to figure out where everybody's like, everybody's going to sit. And then I'll take a step back from that and I'll look at it and I'll go, this person's not quite right and so I'll, I'll rejigger them and then I'll be like okay, then no wait, hang on, we gotta put somebody over here and I'm like trying to fill up all the space but like make it read and like make sure that everybody's in there but then also try to make sure that the panel's sort of flowing nicely so you know where you're supposed to be looking but you know, it's like there's 10 characters that are in our core team and then there's 10 bad guys that correspond with all of them <laughs> So it's like anytime something goes on, there's like 20 people I have to manage in every panel. There really does need to be some kind of hazard pay for these team books because I'm telling you, like writers will just write things like army and it's like, okay, thanks for your 0.2 seconds of work. That's going to be all night. I got told if I write one more sequence in front of a forest of trees, I am going to be set on, like, my penciler uh, on my title, Kid Riot, he was just like, this is unacceptable. No more giant woods shots with statues and parks. None of this. Oh, no, no, no. Have him him look at my forest sequences in Knights of X, where I imply all of the forest. (laughs) (laughs) Gentle suggestion of there being woods. Is that your mutant power? Can you suggest forests? anywhere you need i have the incredible ability to suggest forests incredibly efficiently (laughs) so like when you're having to pack frames with a thousand people if i suddenly draw every branch and piece of bark on the tree it just becomes a complete visual mess right so i have to do things where i like kind of set people against either real dark or real light so that they kind of pop and because i have a tendency to you know use a lot of sort of clear or open line you know i don't fill things in with a ton of black usually what ends up happening is is that everything in the background kind of ends up dropping to a darker color. So what I do is I end up using a lot of black to imply a lot of trees, but not actually draw all of them. I love that. Uh, When you're not suggesting there's a forest over here, forest over there, working on this title, was there a moment that you were like, this is my favorite page, or this is my favorite panel that you were like really excited to get done or get to draw? I actually really like the sequence in the first issue. I can't say everything because there's a couple of really cool ones that are coming up, but that page where all of Arthur evil knights are, are looking around for a hidden mutant kylan you should have read it by now all right let's i'm not this is spoilerific for issue one get over it <laughs> when they're looking for him when i 
got to draw like all the bad guys flying around. That was pretty fun. I got to make all those dudes up. Those are those are all my special boys and girls. Ooh. <laughs> when you get to design these characters, is there like a certain like design philosophy you think about and you're like, this is how I design my characters? Or is it just like you have a general description? You're like, I'm going to let the pen work. And when I come back, there will be a character there. My general design stuff, at least for the for the Marvel stuff, that usually the writer will come in and tell me this is a thing that I kind of think of when I'm thinking of it. Right. And then I spend a bunch of time doing a lot of research. So like, you know, obviously with this one being, you know, mutants, superheroes and swords and sorcery and stuff like that. And I actually did a bunch of research on essentially what would have been, I guess, 11th or 12th century armor, which is not the armor that you typically think of when you think of like, you know, knights and stuff like that. It's actually much more primitive. And that's where uh, Sir Yvain actually came from because he has a very like sort of egg-like helmet with that sort of impassive face on it. And that was something that was fairly common way, way back. You know, he doesn't have like, you know, the big helm. Like That kind of stuff didn't necessarily exist way back then, right? Like this being sort of a story about mutants on the run in Otherworld and sort of a lot of sneaking around and stuff like that. Having, you know, Betsy be in the big armor didn't make a ton of sense either. So, you know, that's when I started like doing a lot of research into stuff like Gambazons and all the other, st- you know, not necessarily big, heavy, you know, leather armor, but something she can move a little bit more easily and freely in. Yeah, a lot of it actually goes back to stuff that is in our real world. So it has some sort of basis and an anchoring in the truth because we're making you believe that people can talk to each other with psychic butterflies. So, you know. <laughs> well, they can. Yeah, obvious, obviously. Ever since you said mutants on the run, all I can imagine is Betsy <laughs> as Paul and Oh God. Opal and a Saturnine as Linda and its wings and it's just oh, mutants God. on the run. And it's on the run. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just through Otherworld so it's like a loot version. It's really <laughs> wonderful. Oh, yeah, but you gotta take it back in time so it's when they're running away from all the girls during Hard Day's Night. Oh, I love it. Oh. Oh. And Shogo is sort of the green submarine. Hell oh, yeah. God. There we go. <laughs> One of the things I, I notice every time I flip through this book is how you kind of can take a feeling and make it kind of family friendly too. Like when you drew Roma, like at once she's instantly like amazingly hot, but very family friendly as well. Even like Megan's look and, and everybody else's. So how fun is it to be able to, you know, make family friendly still a little spicy? I'm admittedly and habitually and unapologetically a wife guy. And I know everybody makes fun of wife guys on the internet. It's fine i don't care but the story i I tell is the night i fell in love with my wife she was wearing a sweater you know it's like there's a way to find you know what is like sexy and attractive and a thing that isn't necessarily form-fitting you know what i mean like right the way you made alligator loki sexy i totally get it (laughs) i totally get it you have Nico, you're going on a list you have not yet begun to see sexy alligator loki my friend i'm 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 Whoa. Shut the fuck I have some up. colors in my inbox that are really going to rattle some cages and, and shake some people's understanding of themselves, I think. Sir, you are now the bastard king of Krakoa. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought you couldn't make that alligator any sexier than under the hammer. I'm all done with them now, but uh, that was an absolute joy to work on. It, that vertical scroll stuff is such a fascinating and brand new challenge as far as making comics goes, right? Because it's like, you know, you're used to looking at a single page and figuring out how you're going to fit all the bits and pieces together. But this is more like, all right, what kind of weird thing can we do to guide the eye past a, a, a thousand different panels that go on forever? Can we use words and sound effects? Can we use leaves and trails? 
tails of, you know, rhubarb or, you know, whatever. I don't know. They're great. They're a ton of fun to work on. I'm, again, over the moon that people are enjoying. They are so much fun to read. (laughs) Bob, I wanted to know what comics you read. Is there any manga you're interested in? Do you read, like, Nancy? Like, what kind of comics do you, like, sit down and enjoy? My favorite comics of all time is Hellboy. That was the one. So, like, once I kind of got over myself because, like, I, I grew up a 90s kid, right? So, like, I read a lot of early image stuff, so I was, like, a huge Cyber Force guy. Once I kind of got over myself and realized that it doesn't have to have all the crosshatching in it, and then understand <laughs> how much I loved the look of, like, a red potato in a trench coat, I was like, these are brilliant. And then I was like, the pacing's brilliant. The the use of light and shadow is brilliant. These are the best comics. Like, they're also, like, a little bit funny, and they're a little bit creepy. It just basically speaks to all the stuff I like, right? It really wraps up a lot of what you've been talking about here. Your aversion to crosshatching so much, your heavy use of ink, <laughs> you're slightly spooky, but not scary. Exactly, right? So that that's why Hellboy like resonated with me a lot. I do read a little bit of manga. I've been trying to get into it a bit more just because like there's some really phenomenal artists working in that. Uh, I was recommended Mob Psycho, which I tried to get into and didn't love. One Punch Man is amazing. I have a, a bunch of copies of Yotsuba, actually. It's such a funny little slice of life thing that's the genuinely you know sort of enjoyable so that's sort of the mm-hmm. manga i've been getting into beyond that mostly i just read like a lot of weird indie stuff as a result of you know drawing the alligator loki i got my uh marvel unlimited subscription so i've been tearing back through all kinds of old x-men stuff which has been really really great so i've been doing a lot of that recently picked up daniel warren johnson's beta ray bill uh oh, which i really just liked. talked about that on the show really like that uh i was reading we only find them when they're dead which i enjoyed quite a bit and then I back a ton of Kickstarters. So a couple friends just recently released a book called The Toddler Apocalypse, which is about like, you know, raising kids when the apocalypse happens, which is really cute. And he's like a super nice guy who we've been sort of like internet friends forever. And I was like, I'll back your book. I have a friend, Dave, who comes out with a Kickstarter every, you know, every six or whatever months. And his book just came in, Night Hunters, that he did with the artist from Space Riders. Oh, Space Riders is so good. I'll be checking that out. I think the Kickstarter is over. You might be able to get more from his website. His name is Dave Baker. So yeah, I think it's heydavebaker.com. So hopefully you pick it up, you like it, it is good, and you have a good time with it. Dave is like one of the first people I met in comics. Like he walked by my booth at like Palm Springs Comic Con, yay, all those years ago. And we made stupid faces at each other and just instantly became friends. Yeah, well, I, I think his work is extraordinary. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Your alligator Loki partner, Alyssa Wong, was on the show, and she and I discovered a passionate love of Final Fantasy Tactics Advanced for the Game Boy Advance (laughs) and so we freaked out about that was just the strangest thing. I do want to know is there some defining piece of literature that you know really shaped the way you interact with fiction that you would need 45 minutes to explain to like the average person what it even was to get them on the same page the way you know I couldn't believe someone else has ever even heard of FFTA I'm super duper lame in that because when I was growing up, Star Wars was my shit. That's the end of it. I can talk for hours about the story structure of it, why it works, how it works, why it's wonderful, why I love it. I used to run around the house in boots and a vest screaming as though I was Han Solo chasing stormtroopers down hallways. Were you an expanded canon guy? Oh yeah. I read all the Tales from the Cantina, Tales of the Bounty Hunters, all the X-Wing books. I read all the Thrawn trilogy. I read Young Jedi Chronicles. Yes, all of it. I've read everything. (laughs) 
reels on head. And then when I watch all the stuff on Disney Plus, I get real grumpy about it because I'm an old man. <laughs> so you know my favorite Star Wars character, Lobaka. Lobaka. <laughs> I love Loey. Yeah. Jonah basically is like human Loey. It's really adorable. <laughs> Because we also have been talking about video games. The greatest video game of all times, as far as narrative goes, for me at least, has been the Horizon series, which is the Horizon Zero Dawn, Horizon Forbidden West, because it perfectly parallels the way I think the world is actually going. <laughs> In like the most awful way where it's like, yes, I think we're we're slowly destroying it. I think all the rich people are trying to jump off of it in spaceships. We're going to do our best to try to fix it afterward, but we're going to fail miserably and then we're all going to die. <laughs> are you saying that you don't think the most realistic video game of all time involves a plumber who never does any plumbing, eating mushrooms to gain and lose size at will? Are you telling me you don't think that's the most realistic video game of all time? Um, Hang on a second now. Hang on a second now because he goes down to the pipes. He smashes little fungus men. He also smashes turtles. Nobody wants a turtle biting their ass when they're taking a poop. That's the truth. <laughs> but it's not so much plumbing. It's like warrioring in some pipes. It's... Okay, how you describe your work and how a plumber describes their work is up to each and everybody's individual business. <laughs> I can break dance on a chessboard, but it doesn't mean that you have to surrender your queen. You know what I mean? <laughs> well... <laughs> There is no way you're going to tell me that being a plumber is not being a warrior because there's no way I'm opening up one of those pipes and watching all the crap that comes spilling Agreed. out of it. I'm not doing oh, yeah. it. Agreed. It's the most disgusting job on earth. You are a warrior if you are a plumber in my yeah. book. Warrior king. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sir, you dropped this. Hands crown to plumber. <laughs> Bob, you have a style that is so like recognizable on a page to me that I get really excited when I see that you're going to be on a book because my first thought is like, I really want to see what this character is going to look like under Bob Quinn's pen. I mean, Cable, I'm a huge Cable fan, so I was so excited for Cable Reloaded. <laughs> but then there's kind of a group of artists like, I mean, like Frank Quitely, Jamie McKelvey, like people who've gone in and done big runs and have gotten to really redesign a character's look or a bunch of characters look as part of their kind of participation in a title. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if there are some character, like a couple characters or like a group of characters that you would love to really kind of work with from the ground up and redesign in a way that kind of is your vision. I've never been a big guy for like redesigning stuff, right? Like I actually really like, here's, I'll, I'll tell you what I like. What I really like is the idea that a superhero would be in the middle of doing something normal and then had to do superhero stuff. So they're like wearing regular clothes. <laughs> I actually kind of get into like modern fashion and stuff like that, which is why I was so excited about doing the, the Hellfire Gala designs that I got to because I got to spend a ton of time sort of like researching weird haute couture stuff and like trying to understand what people were wearing. That's cool. But like, I also like to sort of look around and go like, all right, well, what are the teens wearing? Because I'm an old man now, right? Like what 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 are people putting on their meat wagons to make themselves look rad, right? Like I, and typically I have no idea because I wear the same thing every day because I don't like think about it but i'm very interested in it just sort of in general that's very michael kors of you michael kors wears the exact same thing every single day of his life but he's a fashion designer also when you were saying i'll tell you what i like i thought you're gonna break out into wannabe by the spice girls <laughs> <laughs> the only one. So, 
I now need to know who's your Spice Girl. Oh, yeah. I was into Baby Spice when I was a kid, and now I find it a little cloying and maybe a little awkward, and I'm all about that vocal power on Mel C. It's Mel C. It's gotta be Mel C. Nathan converted me, thousand percent. (laughs) Yeah, I think in my younger days, I was a Ginger Spice guy because I thought redheads were super pretty, but then she married Christian Horner, who I don't Mm. like, so that off the table. So, yeah, I'll go go Mel C. That sounds good. I'm into that. Okay, great. It feels like a refined taste now, yeah. (laughs) That's so funny. Like, parts of this book, I almost thought Megan was drawn a little Jerry Horner-ish, so I was... So, like, you drew one of my favorite panels that I never knew I needed. The alligator Loki, Thor, Jane, and Runa are just on that, like, yes, yes. <laughs> like that horse. Like, oh, my God. Thank you. Oh, yes. Yeah, so on the Rainbow Road roller coaster riding sleep near. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That whole theme park. What was it like creating that magical place? Oh, my God. Uh, I have a huge soft spot for old Norse mythology. If you've read the prose or poetic edda at all, they're really, really funny because they will say things that are completely ridiculous. So matter of factly that they're absolutely hysterical. So I love, love, love all that crap. And, you know, obviously I worked for Disney for eight years, I think. So, you know, I was like, oh, okay, great. Now I get to mash my two favorite things together, right? Marvel cosmology with Asgard actually has a couple of different things that the standard cosmology doesn't have. So it's like, you know, I I know what we're doing with Muspelheim, right? And Niflheim and all that stuff. They add a couple of other ones that are not, not, that are not the, the, the actual canon. It was a ton of fun just trying to like figure out what what dwarf architecture looks like, right? And like, you know, I, I end up doing a ton of digging around on, you know, different really angular architectures from older times and, you know, sort of underst- understanding how, you know, the, the ancient Norsemen would actually build their houses and stuff like that, which I get into all that weird micro niche crap about it. <laughs> So I want to make sure if anybody has any more specific questions, I want to make sure that they get in because, you know, I want to make sure everybody walks away really positive on Bob. I want everybody to feel good about me. <laughs> I feel very good about you, Bob, even though you broke my heart earlier. Oh, I'll never forgive myself. <laughs> I'll never let you forget. <laughs> From now on, I'm the reply guy who's constantly being like, hey, remember that time? Uh, that's all right. You made up for it. You gave me back Kurt's invisibility and shadow power also in that same issue. So I'm here for it. Oh, thank goodness. I loved how amazing your Fury Sentinels were. Oh, my God. Ah, really good. Again, it's like they're great, but it's another situation where I have to fit something giant uh, onto the oh, page. No. <laughs> You seem to be really adept at putting something giant on a page. Your splash pages are really like what sticks with me, the composition of them. It's very kind of you to say that because it is a thing that I feel personally that I still need to work on quite a bit. Once you turn it in and you look at it again, all you see is all the stuff that you think you could have done better. All I do every day with every page I work on is try to do the absolute best I can do that day, which to me, I think ends up with situations where maybe page to page, I'm a little inconsistent because I'm constantly experimenting and trying some new thing and trying to find some better way of doing it. really appreciate the kind words and I'm going to keep trying to earn your respect by doing it better than I did it last time. Well, you have our respect. All I want for you is to know that you do a good job, Bob. So, all right. If we're going to go video games, I got to ask some questions. All right. All right. So if we're going classic gen, are we looking at Nintendo, Super Nintendo or Sega? So original Nintendo I had, I was a huge video game guy. I had Nintendo, Super Nintendo, 
Nintendo Anagenesis, and I had a 32X, my friends. Oh, 32X, son of a bitch. Oh, my God. Shadow Squadron was my absolute shit. I loved that game so much. I'm sitting here over with my Tiger Electronic handhelds. Did you have the Sega CD? I did not have a Sega CD, but I did have a friend who had it. <laughs> they played a lot of Sewer Shark. And then my brother got a PlayStation and I didn't. And then college rolls around, PS2 shows up. And now I've I've worked my way forward. And obviously uh, I spent a bunch of time making video games. So I had all of the consoles all through my video game years. And now that's right. I have a PS5 because I'm the coolest guy. And I also have uh, <laughs> the new cool Xbox as well. I have them all. So good. But that's because I work from home and can watch that guy with a Twitter account that says buy them now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. Same. Same. If I didn't work from home, and like if I couldn't be like, oh, I have a twenty-minute break. It's time to grab my switch. I don't think I'd be quite as gamesy. But now it's just so easy. It's like console. You're here. Oh my god. The, the switch has been the best thing for flights for me because now I've bought Skyrim for like the eighth time. But I have Skyrim on my switch, so I could just run around in White Run again for the five thousandth time. But now on an airplane. <laughs> Final Fantasy VIII on Switch for me. Just anywhere I go, I can say whatever. That's better than me with my Stardew Valley on my Switch. Hey, there is nothing wrong with Sims. Stardew Valley is so much fun. It's one of the greatest games of all time. All right, I'm going to have to download it now. One of these days I'm going to actually start playing it. It will take hours of your life, days of your life away from you if you keep playing it. Oh, yeah. When quarantine started, we moved directly into Minecraft and put 500 hours into it or something like that. It's sickening. I'm getting the Disney one that's coming out next year. I'm going to be so gay about it. I'm just going to be like, princess living in a village, going to do some farming. I'm really (laughs) excited. (laughs) Whenever I hear Stardew Valley, I just think of Alyssa Wong told a story when she was a TA for, I assume, an English class. And for one of the assignments, one of her students wrote what was essentially Stardew Valley fan fiction. And (laughs) and while they were reviewing it, she called him out. And the student got very red, but then she gave him an A because she was like, it's pretty ballsy. So like, I got to respect it. <laughs> I think you mean game respect game. Get it? Because it's a game. We, we got it. You all. We got it. Look, I like the joke. I don't know what the rest of these animals are doing on here. Not laughing at it. <laughs> well, I like that you opened this episode by calling people stupid like 40 times in like five minutes. That was I, re- such a I really am move. the worst, aren't I? <laughs> Well, that's that's the price of being the best. <laughs> so maybe you're the worst at something else. What about Disney soundtracks? Everybody's got that one that they put on really loud, even though I was born in 86. For me, it's Moana. I just put on the Lin-Manuel and it fills me. I- I'm going to tell you a story now. I tell us. got so sick one day and I had not seen Moana yet. And I was on all kinds of drugs and I was just miserable. And then Moana came on and I started watching it. And I'm not lying to you when I said the entire first probably 40 minutes of the movie, I was just in tears the whole time, just bawling my eyes out. And then my wife made fun of me for it. And I was like, well, whatever. You know, I was sick and I didn't feel good and I was on drugs. So what are you going to do about it? And then so I was like, well, I'm going to watch it again later. And I'm going to prove to myself that I could do it without becoming a giant blubbery baby. So I turn it on and no drugs, no nothing. And I, I it like Grandma Manta Ray goes out in the ocean and it's just waterworks all over again. There's yep. nothing I could do about it. You're welcome. Yeah. So listen, if I turn on at any point the Moana soundtrack, I'm going to be a mess. So I can't do it. That's not one that I can just play. Oh, that's me with Encanto. The finale song, as soon as like, the townspeople come in, 
I lose it, and I, I like am inconsolable, and I have learned my lesson of saying, "Well, we can't listen to this before work." Well, no, I, oh. I haven't seen Encanto yet, but I do have the same thing that happens with Coco. So, like, when remember me, yeah. that that's it, I'm done. Uh, but Gone. for me, the soundtrack, it's only because I have such a strong memory of this, where we were driving home from my grandmother's for Thanksgiving when I was, I don't know, like a teenager or something like that, and my dad put on the Lion King. Soundtrack in the car. Oh, but that is one of the best ones, though. And I was like, this entire soundtrack is nonstop bangers. This thing is great. We're, we're all singing along with "Be Prepared," and I was like, okay, this this is a great soundtrack. I think this is my. Be prepared Disney for soundtrack. what? The death of the king. Yeah. Why is he sick? No fool. We're gonna kill him. And Simba too. Great idea. Who needs a king? No king. No king. Tra la 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 la. You idiot. <laughs> yeah. It's forever. It's not even rent free. I pay it rent because I don't want it to leave. <laughs> stay. Please stay. Yeah. It's it's. Per- I've actually sent TK pian- me at my piano playing. Uh, Can you feel the love tonight? Yeah, that that's banging. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> I love hearing all this Lion King love. I definitely hearing be prepared set the tone for the exact kind of queer I was going to grow up to become. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Irons, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, so my favorite story about that is so um though you won't get a sniff without me. Jeremy Irons hits it so hard that he hurts his voice and can't speak for three weeks so instead that final verse that we prepared for the coup of the century it's jim cummings that's why it sounds like tigger the last verse is tigger so is that true yes it's absolutely insane it's why that first like two-thirds of the song is so good and then all of a sudden the very heavy choruses start to come in and drown out what is a slightly mixed now because i mean like in the beginning of the song he is clearly mixed like michael on Man in the Mirror, where he's hitting the gonna make a change, and you hear the G into the E in a really clear way. But mm-hmm. by the end of the song, Jim Cummings is mixed like it's Janet on Rhythm Nation, and she doesn't want you to hear the thinness. So, like, <laughs> I really love that this this is this is why we do this show. I grew up watching like Teen Titans, Static Shock. That's like my superhero kid show. Pokemon. It, well, yes, but that's not superhero. I would like to point. Out, I think Pokemon trainers, Team Rocket, are like great antiheroes. Yeah, if we're gonna say that, like. Mario plumbing is plumbing. We can say that Pokemoning is superheroing. Pikachu is a superhero. We're taking a lot of strong stances here tonight, you know? Yeah, a lot of really interesting hot takes people are taking. I just want to thank you all for coming out, everyone, to this incredible interview. Bob, I want to thank you so much for coming out. This was the absolute best time, and uh, I can't wait to see more issues of Knights of X. And uh, are there any projects that you either have recently come out, are coming out, or are coming out that you would like to plug and or where we can find you on the interwebs? Oh, man, I wish I did. So the stuff that I have coming out right now is obviously Alligator Loki. I think is coming out every week, every two weeks on... uh... Uh, on Marvel Unlimited, I think. Maybe, I'm not sure. You know, obviously, Knights of X, out now, in stores. Go buy it. Thank you very much. I have another thing I'm working on that I can't tell you about yet. But if you follow me on Twitter, you've probably seen some pages from it. But it just hasn't been announced yet. Speaking of Twitter, if you want to follow me there, it's RobotJQ. If you're on Facebook, it's BobQDraws, but I don't post there anymore. If you're on Instagram, it's KingOfSmaster, which makes no sense, but I don't post there much anymore either. Does anybody still use Tumblr? I don't know. Join my Substack. I don't know. I just... (laughs) Yeah, wait, who's in your top five for your uh, MySpace? 
I was trying to think back on it. I actually was looking for my MySpace a little while ago because I had an old picture of me with Sergio Aragones and I Shut lost it. Shut the fuck up. Yes. It was like my first San Diego Comic-Con and I met him and I was over the moon because I always loved, you know, a mad look at when I was a kid. And, you know, he was there and he was drawing and I got the, I got a copy of Gru signed by him and, you know, I, I got a picture taken. And then I was like, where is that photo? I couldn't find it anywhere. I was like, is it on my MySpace? I managed to find my MySpace. And then I looked to see if the picture still existed and I saw the caption for it, but the link was broken and I couldn't get it anymore. I was absolutely uh, heartbroken. Well, uh, that does lead me to point out that there is a Gru connection in something we just covered. Somebody in an issue of Marvel Comics Presents said uh, they wish that Marvel Comics Presents could do a Gru story. And MCP's letter response was like, well, you never know. I mean, Epic Comics, we haha, we definitely can publish those still. And But the thing that was in that Marvel Comics Presents was a wacky 1980s fever dream called Spellbound. And uh, <laughs> if you have not had a chance to see what that's all about, I'm going to link you to it because it is the best kind of fever dream cracked out wackiness that the 1980s produced at Marvel. And it, it is very much in the spirit of the weird interview this wound up being. I've had such a great time. Bob, thank you so much for everything. Well, thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy it. It's always a pleasure to be here with y'all. Everybody say goodbye to the nice Bob. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, good to finally talk to you. We're going to remember forever that you broke Steve's heart. Uh, I'll never. No, I mean, (laughs) don't don't, don't make it about that forever. I want to go back to being the good job, Bob. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nico here again. And I'm so excited to make these announcements that I couldn't do it alone. I needed to bring in some help. So with me, I have TK. Hey everybody, I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. You know, when X is for Podcast began several years ago, it was just a couple of friends talking about how much they loved 70s X books and the sort of interconnected world that it represented, whether it was Uncanny X-Men, Defenders, Champions, Captain Britain, Early New mutants. And somewhere along the way, we were dazzled by the brilliant work of Jonathan Hickman reimagining the strangest teens of all time into a future that we just had to be part of. And so we segmented our coverage and we covered some new stuff and some old stuff. And we just hit a point where there was just so much going on in the present that we switched our focus to primarily covering the modern age of the House of X. That said, our coverage has evolved. So many incredible voices have come and gone over the years. And we finally feel that we're at a position where we're ready to refocus our coverage. We're going to kick things off by keeping going on Mutants, Magic, and Marvels in the form of Modern Marvels, where we take a look at all of your favorite new books, and we're going to be dropping those episodes on Wednesdays. On Fridays, you're going to see a mix of the incredible work we've been doing over on X's for Podcasts in our premiere episodes, where we take a look at special events or have the opportunity to interview amazing creators. We're going to be splitting that up with our return to classic material returning to 1984's Secret Wars with Chrono Skimming Classics alternating with XI4P premiere on Fridays where you guys can check out our love of classic X-Books. Now, before we get back to 1984, we're going to take a quick stop and take a look at Asgardian Wars and we can't wait to bring you that coverage. Well, with all of this going on, we still have one more special surprise and that's where TK and I come in and I could not be more excited to announce this project. It has been a sort of dream of mine and TK, 
say, I asked you to be part of it, and I cannot wait to unveil our MC2 project to the entire world. Now, do you want to talk a little bit about what the MC2 is to you? It is absolutely nothing, except now I really love it. No, I mean, you know, I was not an MC2 kid. I was just, and we've talked about this on the show, I was just a little bit past the age where, even though I was still kind of a Marvel person, I was kind of falling off a little bit, but I was just too old for a bunch of books that looked like they were specifically designed to reel in kids. So it wasn't something that I really paid attention to. I kept hearing the name Mayday Parker as my return to comics came up in, you know, the early 2000s, around 2000. And I never really investigated who that was or what that meant. I was vaguely aware that there were multiple spider adjacent women that Mayday Parker was one of them. But I really did not know a lot and did not, you know, have any attachment. I was aware that this universe existed. I was aware of the general idea of it. But that was about all. So this was all really fresh and new to me. This had always been a dream project of mine to get to do someday to take a look at a universe that as a kid really influenced me that I was very curious about the way it held up and how I would feel about it as an adult. And while we had originally envisioned this project as a unique separate entry, it just made sense to bring this home to X's for Podcast. And I could not be prouder than to bring this material to you guys, kicking off our celebration of our new format, taking a look at premiere events within the Marvel Universe, chrono skimming the classic X titles that built this franchise, taking a look at the modern Marvels that continue to reshape our thoughts on the X-Men, and now presenting you guys MC2, a complete look back at a singular universe in 13 episodes. We're going to be dropping those on Mondays for 12 weeks after we kick it all off with this, our special MC2 Zero jumping on point that helps explain everything you might need to know about this universe. We're also going to be publishing a read-along guide so that you'll know what issues are going to be discussed, what episodes, what weeks. Those read-along guides are going to return not just for MC2, but you're going to see those appearing for Chrono Skimming Classics. So if you're looking to read along, you'll be able to experience the reading club adventure that is X's for Podcasts. And I am so excited about our future as a show, as a team, and as a fandom as we move forward together in this exciting new era for X-Men where we get to look back on some of the books that most shaped us going to be a really great time. We're going to dig into a lot of stuff that I think we all remember fondly, but really time to take a deep, long re-examining of and see what holds up and uh, what kind of just makes us laugh. Well, until we return to laugh a whole lot, TK, I cannot wait to take a look at this material with you. Going to be a good time. I also want to point out that in all of our adventures here on X's for Podcast, as we continue to add more products, Saturdays, we're going to be retweeting our sister show, The Billy Club, where myself and Tori Sheehan, two longtime Daredevil fans, take a look at the amazing adventures of Marvel's Crimson Crusader from his earliest 1960 origins. And you'll be able to find those Saturdays on the Hubs Plus Network over on YouTube, as well as retweeted here on X's for Podcast. You can also check out my original work in the Young Men in Love anthology. I'm so lucky to be a part of this. Some amazing Marvel greats and some other incredible creators are part of this book with me, like Joe Glass, Cena Grace, Anthony Oliveira, Terry Blas, and more. So that's definitely something you want to check out in the month of June. Guys, I'm so proud to be the producer on this show and it's just so fucking exciting.
exciting that this show wants to keep evolving like the X books that helped create it. And I, I'm just so grateful for my team. It's it's unbelievable. It's really unbelievable to feel like you get to turn on your computer and connect with people that care about the same things as you. The world's really fucking hard and really lonely. And the idea that you can find a family when you need one, that's kind of what the X-Men is about. And I really have a family when I come to X's for podcast. And it's not just the amazing people that share their time with me every week, which I don't even know how to thank them for that every week. It's the incredible fans, the people who interact via emails, via Twitter, via Instagram. It really moves me to know that you guys are out there. I'm just really grateful. And it's so cool to get to be part of this transformation. And thank you for letting me produce it. And until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, Judgment Day is a coming. Enjoy this last segment and we'll see ya. Bye. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And this is the first episode of the MC2 Project, the first of a series of AU examinations where we're taking a look at all of the worlds that kind of are plus or minus that 616, right? We just don't want to look right into that number. It's like trying to look at the sun, right, during an eclipse or this ring light that I've got on me right now. So I want to talk about why this project, why this emission, this ejaculate, this time, right? I'm just going to go full L Woods on you. I guess you did. Yeah, always. Always have an L Woods quote armed and ready to go or any character from Miss Congeniality. So (laughs) why this? Why MC2? I know I have a million reasons, but I'd love to know why you agreed to do this with me. I mean, the big reason is because I'll just do anything with you, but really it's because we are are getting to a point where we're seeing references both in the Marvel Comics universe and the Marvel Cinematic Universe come from places you never would have expected, you never remembered, and you never would have thought about. And there's never been a better time to just find the little corners and play around with them a little bit, pick them apart, see what's there that's valuable, see what's there that is absolute garbage, and just remind people that, you know, the big stories that everybody thinks about are always going to be important but you wouldn't believe what's there hiding in the corner. And I completely agree with that and you know just to kind of relate it back to the thing that we you know start this kind of as a not quite a spinoff of but definitely a secondary project of Excess for Podcast the show that we're a part of I've you know been on the show for several years TK's been killing it for the last few months on the show and one of the things that we love is Phoenix and Dark Phoenix and it's hard to forget that there was a recent Fox Dark Phoenix film and in it, the bad guy was Vuck. And uh, sure enough, Vuck is from the comics and appeared in Maximum Security in a Chris Claremont pen issue, no less. So it's a thing where you really never know where these stories are going to come back up or where they're going to desperately scramble to find a character name from. You just never know. And sometimes that's an awesome thing and it's a great little reference and sometimes it is Jessica Chastain 
insane being paid to do nothing. A thousand percent. But on a happier note, I want to talk about MC2 because MC2 kind of represented a funny cross-section of coming of age for me, right? Foster the People's coming of age starts playing in the background, right? So I've talked a lot about how my dad got me into comics, but I want to talk a little bit more about how I got myself into comics. And that was by finding the books that really resonated with me and my dad, because, you know, I was 12. The fuck I was going to have like a wallet or whatever. And so my dad would buy me these comics and he started bringing me home this MC2 line. And one of the reasons that the MC2 line hit me so hard was because I kind of felt like Spider-Girl. I kind of felt like the son of a comics legend in my mind. You know, my dad got me into comics. He knew everything. And, you know, because like a good parent, if he didn't know it, he just kind of made it up. And so I, to me, my dad knew everything about comics and I felt like Mayday. I felt like I was following in the footsteps of someone great at this. And I was a nerdy kid with glasses and messy hair. And I really wanted to be jacked and, you know, worked on that throughout adulthood. And, but as a kid, I didn't see working out as a possibility. It just didn't seem like an option for me. And here's this like nerdy kid who just magically size changes and gets to like hang out with Wolverine's daughter. So like J2 and, you know, lifelong obsession with Juggernaut being so big and jacked, right? So J2 really represented me having a place to kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of awaken some interests in like bodybuilding and in sort of changing my own body that, you know, I wouldn't come do on for many years, but it was a pivotal moment in my coming of age and understanding who I wanted to be when I, you know, ultimately did transform. And then, you know, Anex, J2 was on it, so I would read it. But MC2 was really pivotal in me becoming a fan and doing over 300 episodes of X's for Podcast and 100 episodes of HTML where we talk about the MCU. So this for me is coming home. This is uh, going back to my childhood bedroom and cracking open the brown bag from Midtown Comics that my dad would bring home and uh, tossing aside those weird looking new X-Men books and picking up those amazing MC2 books. And, uh, you know, it's really about having that. And I'm so excited to do this with you. Like, not like, not like, oh, I could do it with anybody. But like, I'd be excited to do this with any fucking buddy. But like, and I've been excited to talk about it with people before. But like, there's something that's, you know, we share a really, a really personal bond that I really appreciate that there is sort of a, a brotherhood in the way that like, we would share our books like that. If we had grown up friends, we would have been sneaking these back and forth to each other. I don't know what sort of 1950s McCarthy era elementary school we're growing up in where they're like, no comics! But uh, evidently that's what we're doing. So, you know, it's the Trumbull from Matilda and, you know, she's going to take all our books. So I guess from here, my question for you is not exactly what are you hoping to get from this project? Because, you know, we're all going to get the same thing. We're going to get 225 issues that tell a very specific story, kind of, over 12 years across like a dozen titles. And it's not done to this day because these characters still continue to pop up in the MC proper. So my question for you then, TK, what are you hoping to get from this next 225 issue read? I mean, I'm thinking of this a little bit like digging up the time capsule and also looking at the sort of historical document that this represents when it comes to an idea that I think we're going to talk about a lot more, which is there was a time, I mean, there have been many times where Marvel clearly has been concerned that the ship might be sinking. They might just need to locate the exits just in case. Just, and in, case. Proje- just in case. Projects like these re- 
really represent those attempts and that hope that if something has gone terribly awry somehow that cannot be fixed in our continuity, we have an option for using this intellectual property to continue to produce a product that people will be interested in. This is very clearly an early attempt at that, and we will talk about others and how they relate to this one, but it's fascinating to see what people believe is important and quintessential about the Marvel Universe such that if the one that we all know and love is not going to work anymore, what do we need to pull out of it to start again? I completely agree. I am so fascinated by the number of people who do the same thing with these tropes a number of times that we're going to talk about in this sort of history of documents. So for those who don't know how I like to read comics, I like to read comics by doing a frightening amount of research. It is certainly never that I have ever come even close to doxing a human, but what I do is I index their work to that level and it's really about understanding how the world experienced at the time of release and how that relates to how we experience it now. And so TK and I have an enormous amount of research that went into formulating this project. Now this project is going to map out over, like we said, roughly 225 issues that were released over some 12 years. Now it breaks down into altogether something like 39 volumes roughly. Several collections have never been released and that's a volume of one title J2, a volume of another title A next, as well as a number of issues of Spider-Girl. And But if we were to work all that math out, it's about 39 volumes totaling some 225, and we're going to be taking a look at them in kind of issue clusters. Now, what is the MC2? Well, the MC2 is a take on the Marvel Universe where creator, former editor-in-chief, often writer, sometimes regular editor, Tom DeFalco imagined a world where heroes aged in real time. Now, this real-time iteration also involved a return to, you know, sort of core Marvel Universe tropes, uh, you know, and very much the late 80s, early 90s. For me, I think this old school feel was meant to feel retro, but as a kid, I couldn't tell the difference between those and the trades I had of like Executioner's Song from like 1992. So I, I don't know. I think kind of from the outset, this initial creation point, they kind of already missed the mark. Yeah, this is kind of one of the last like the death knell of the completely unhip company man that is trying to write young people <laughs> yes. you know with morrison being the person that comes in and is like no longer will i let people with absolutely no style attempt to write the people that we see having the most style in their particular universe i will set the standard now by which if you're going to come in and write these books you can't be a giant fucking dork or if you're going to be you have to get somebody to do research for you. God love Tom DeFalco. He has no idea what a young person in 1998 was wearing. He misses the mark by five to 10 years and it is glaring at points. And that's also part of what makes this fascinating. Like this guy, this company man, this person who has produced so much content for Marvel is like, don't worry guys, I got you. I'll pull this together with the young peoples and brilliant maybe ideas for what that might look like in terms of process and like product physical actual product no idea what he's doing in terms of concept I agree completely and it's in part that they specifically did hire what were essentially older writers to do this you know in 1998 Tom DeFalco was already 48 years old and that is not to say that 
that is too old to be a creator, but it might be too old to say, I have my pulse on what is young. And, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz, who is the finisher on this first issue that we're going to be taking a look at, the issue that started it all, What If 105, Bill Sienkiewicz was doing what was a hip take on young heroes in 1985, 1986. So by 1998, it does feel a little bit like this is maybe out of sync with what an actual high schooler would have been doing. I was in sixth grade. I have a vague almost excuse, not quite, but like it just seemed like more of the comics I grew up with. And maybe that was even the problem with hiring so many veterans for this. To me, the the stark example of this is J2 trying to put together the coolest costume he can think of. And he wraps a flannel around the waist of his juggernaut costume, which stylistically just didn't happen in 1998 any longer. Had this story been produced in 1992 during the grunge like epic? Yeah, he would you would have nailed it. And he would have probably been more like, you know, a misfit who was into grunge. It doesn't work. You can't even use the excuse of like, he's nerdy. He doesn't really quite get it. It's just a complete miss. And it is this stark part of his costume that you see in, you know, on covers for, for the first few issues. It's all over the place. And it's so funny because, you know, you're saying that it's 1992 and my first thought was, no, they still did this in Clueless. Uh, when they did it in Clueless, they pointed out that those were the grunge stoner kids that were like, this is not who And even that is. was 94. That was, you know, that's yeah. that, that's being produced in 94. So like, Truly. you know, by by 98, we're moving into Britney Spears in sync territory. Yeah. yeah you want definitely. parachute pants, you know, you want a juggernaut that decides to frost his tips for no reason. Yes. But, <laughs> but it's, you know, there are reasons why somebody might be wearing a flannel like that. And I could have bought it if the person writing it had the idea because they knew what young people were doing and were trying to play around with that in some way. The last time Tom DeFalco considered a young person was six years previous in 1992. And this is what he went. I very much agree. And, you know, when we're talking about kind of putting this in a context of what was going on in the Marvel Universe at the time that they said, what if we need a way out? You know, there's a a pretty famous quote that when Bendis was asked to write Ultimate Spider-Man, he believed he would be writing Marvel's final number one, that that's what dire straits the company was still facing when Ultimate Spider-Man launched. And that's a stark realization. But when I take a look at the month that the MC2 debuted with Spider-Girls number one and zero, along with J2 number one and a next number one, we had the uncanny 360 and X-Men 80 relaunch period where everybody that left Excalibur came back to the team and it had those badass foil covers and it was like, you know, the Hunt for Xavier kind of era. And it was one of those, oh, look, somebody who grew up with the all new, all different X-Men is ready to write them now. And so it had a really, that was kind of like an okay minute for X-Men going on. I remember that time pretty fondly. I don't know if you do. I actually, I don't. And this is something, you know, it's funny that you mentioned sort of your coming into comics with MC2 being like a big onboarding point for you. For me, it was the leaving point. It was not that specifically, but I had started to slow down after Onslaught. Something about zero tolerance. I just wasn't really feeling it. I was still really invested in Generation X because they were my teens. But I'm starting to notice that book is having the same problem that MC2 is having, which is that nobody who actually understands teenagers is there anymore. And slowly I'm just realizing I'm getting older. I no longer have that childlike fascination with superheroes. I'm needing to engage at a more 
critical thinking level and nothing is showing up for me in Marvel. And MC2 was kind of emblematic of that. Like there's nobody here that wants to talk to a 13 going on 14 year old about like the true terrors of going into high school. It's all like, I get you cool kid. Here's juggernaut in a fucking flannel around his waist. And that's when I started to, you know, get into things like vertigo and just move into other territories again until Morrison shows up and really is able to bridge that gap. You know, Morrison is not a particularly like, hey, teens person. He's like a human beings of all types will respond to my insane stories. It doesn't matter how old you are. And that was kind of what I needed. And MC2 really was emblematic of the fact that that absolutely was not going to happen for a little while. Well, and you know, it's really funny that you say that because as you're saying it, like I'm realizing once at like 14 years old, I was much more concerned with uh, meeting cute boys than I was super concerned with grabbing my brown paper bag from my dad. You know, that's like you're starting to go out, you're starting to have friends that can like drive you to the mall and then you can like hang out at the mall afterward and then you can like hang out afterward. And so I had reached a, a critical point where, you know, just a year after you, we're about a year apart, just a year after you, I really, you know, I jumped off by the time the second wave of titles end. I did not actively read anything after that. My dad kept bringing them home. And like, if I had like a day that I was homesick, I really do very much identify with what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, this was a tough time. I, the comics are so different now in terms of what kids can get out of them. And that standard is getting close to 20 years old at this point. So I don't think people realize the degree to which in the late 90s, we were really being told, if you age out of this, that's not our problem. We're just going to work on the next generation of kids. Yeah. And to that end, there actually are several generations represented in this first month's sales. Now, while I don't think that sales represent everything, I think they represent how, at least at this point in time, Marvel dealt with math on financing and purchasing and releasing. So it's of note that the only book that outsold the Uncanny and X-Men relaunch was Battle Chasers number one. And it only outsold it by a little bit, you know, end of the 90s, made sense, you know, Battle Chasers, whatever. But the Uncanny and X-Men, I'm shocked by this. Their difference of sales is about 4,000 units, which feels steep to me. But Uncanny sold about 142,000 units and X-Men sold about 138,000. The only numbers I really want to mention from here are that Spider-Girl, number one, would sell 63,000 copies, which is less than a half of the lower selling X title and was still considered a hit. That's of note. And that's not the only sales for X-Men and Uncanny X-Men that month, as those were just the hollow covers. There were then the regular standard issue covers, and that's before we even get into dynamic forces and variants. This was just that the hollow and the standard were both offered as regular versions and had to be counted twice. And these aren't great numbers historically for the X-Men, like, overall. No, these are end of the 90s. Marvel having trouble. Yeah. From there, we have Avengers 9 of the Kurt Busiek run. Kurt Busiek, George Perez. If you say a bad word about George Perez, you can't be on the show. And we have Wolverine 129, Fantastic 410. We're definitely in a Heroes Return era where we're seeing some weird runs. Mutant X number one was also released this month. So talking about AUs, we might want to take a look. We had an event going on over in Spider-Man with issue 440, but I don't know that I've ever seen a Amazing Spider-Man sell 64,000 copies in regards to X-Men selling 140. Like that feels like an impossible number because the reality is 
Amazing Spider-Man 440 was only one position ahead of Spider-Girl. At this point, your precious Gen X kids were running around on issue number 43, which ranked them at the 24th bestseller of the month overall. Now, speaking of multi-generational kids, X-Force came in at the number 29 position with 82 here on the top charts. Now, it's also of note that they both sold less than Spider-Girl, so keep that in mind. An inexplicable what the motherfucking fuck is somehow X-Man is ranking in at the 32nd position with his 43rd issue and I don't I don't know that did people still know that X-Men was a thing in 1998 I did sort of fail to mention that one that I was still reading because I am for some reason a simp for Nate Gray for whom I take my Twitter handle hey I respect it I have no judgments there I just went on about how J2 helped me realize I want to lift weights so we're good you know I mean Nate terrible run of comics all the way through and this is really where we're not and i feel like just it was some like people were just like i don't know there's x-man on the cover i i have now purchased it like it's like some sort of like spell that they just put on comics purchasers where they were like i I got hypnotized and i bought x-man i just kept buying it because it had the right letters in it (laughs) right exactly now of note is right around that position are the aforementioned final issue of excalibur right the team came back to the main title so excalibur ended with 125 issues finalizing at the 38th position. Now, the best-selling Marvel titles on either side of that are in the 36th position, A Next number one, and in the 48th position, J2 number one. It is important to remember forever that J2 is kind of the unwanted baby of this initial run. It is never a seller. To this day, J2 has the most issues missing of any of these books percentage-wise on Marvel Unlimited. Half of J2 is still not on Marvel Unlimited, so it's interesting now I do also want to point out a couple of other titles where you might be like huh at this point Daredevil ends with issue number 380 putting it at the 97th best seller I need to point out that J2 sold almost twice as many issues for his first issue as Daredevil sold of his final issue and how far off are we at this point from the Daredevil movie uh two, three years. The guy who would come on to revamp Daredevil in the next months, Kevin Smith, of course, would have a cameo in the Daredevil film, playing some sort of like, autopsy doctor! I don't I don't know what his character's name was, so we're just gonna call him autopsy doctor! And it's terrific. So, you know, kind of back to MCU, right? Because we were talking about the world of 1998 at Marvel that sets up the reality of what's going to come with MC2, right? So now that we know the, the playing field we're in, I want to talk for a moment about the previous playing fields Marvel attempted this with. Now, well before there was MC2, Marvel had had the dream of maintaining multiple lines, and it has always been some kind of mess. I don't want to call them all failures, because a lot of people will attack me for saying that about 2099, but I do want to mention that none have ever been so strong that Marvel kept them around for much longer than a decade. And I would love to know your relationship relationship with these previous attempts before we jump into the explanation of them. I mean, I was all in on 2099. I was exactly, you know, the right age. The thing I was talking about before where you're just like, we got to catch the kids and like get the get into something the kids will like. I was the right age for that with 2099 where I was just like, what's the future going to be like? I got to know. And, you know, the fact that there was no sort of point to be made out of the story, none of that matters. 
mattered to me. I was just into the 2099 and thinking about what the future could be. The fact that none of the characters were especially compelling. Just it was new powers that I'd never seen before. That also sort of started to get me into like Spider-Man 2099, which I then retroactively got into Spider-Man. It was a big like it's a smaller investment for me to learn about Punisher 2099 than it would be to go buy Punisher comics right now. So I'm going to get into this and work my way back. They really sold. Okay, I accept that. I really do. I feel like I was a little too young for 2099. And because my comics were purchased for me, because, you know, child, one of the things was like, if my dad didn't read it, I didn't read it. And if it didn't have easily accessible trading cards, I didn't know it. And there was no Wikipedia. There was no Marvel Unlimited. And there was no trade library. So let's take a look a little further back than 2099. Let's say February of 1977, when Marvel decided to take a look at consistently twisting its canon with the release of the first ongoing What If title. Now, I need to point this out. Just to strengthen our previous argument, What If number 20 was written by Tom DeFalco in 1980? By 1998, he doesn't feel like the guy to launch a series of books about kids, you know? It, It just puts an odd spin on how far apart the ideas should be, right? And I think there was some maybe, there was maybe something about What If that people really liked because there have been no less than 250 issues called What If out of Marvel across multiple series, multiple volumes, tons of one shots. Oh man. So if you try to index them, it's just a nightmare because every What If one shot gets its own damn name. Now I know What If was like the cartoon du jour for the summer, but how did you feel about What If, the the title itself? I mean, to me, What If stories are such a smart play for Marvel in terms of you always ask yourself these questions. What if Dark Phoenix hadn't died on the moon is the most important thing an X-Men fan who goes back and like knows their X-Men history will probably ever ask themselves. I would, every single author who I've ever loved on the X-Men, I would read their version of what if Phoenix hadn't died on the moon. There is no shortage of stories to be told in the what if universe. So to me, it always makes sense. And then to me, I also always see the cynical aspect of like, well, of course you can sell more issues of this. And it's worth noting that in the process of doing all of this research, one of the things I, of course, looked up were the sales figures on everything. And this book, this what if that launched everything, what if 105, it sold 29,000 cops. We're talking about books selling 150,000 copies. You know, uh, there's there's an excruciating outlier and I'd need to look up the number month it came with again. But, you know, most of these best-selling months are 150, 150, 180, 170. There's one month where it's the darkness number one and it's like 350 South. It's just nuts. It's just such an astronomical spike. But so then we're talking about a world where comics can sell literally 10 times what What If 105 sold. That must tell us that they cost so little to produce, that they're not hard to make, and that any return on them is then a victory. The flip side of that is like sometimes they're just not going to be very interesting stories, but it never hurts to throw it out there and unfortunately what if 105 like the concept isn't staggeringly interesting the idea that any superhero would become an adult and have a child is not really even a what if it's a when yeah yeah i mean like by this point that was already the basis for what is to this day considered you know and it's one of those things where like as everybody's like hey guys i'm reading my 11th alan moore comic and every sixth word is rape right when you get to that point and you're like let me check out this sandman book instead right i feel like that's what's 
like culturally happened over the last 20 years. Uh, and now, you know, we're at a point where everybody's just sort of like, oh, Sandman is the comic book. There weren't comics before Sandman. That's all retcons. And so I feel like we're already talking about a world where the crux of that comic has to do with parentage and how succeeding your parent is such an, a crucial element of, you know, the wheel of time. So we're already talking about a world where the most critically acclaimed comic of ever is about this. So it is a little bit like, yeah, it's not the most original idea, but it maybe doesn't need to be. Well, you know, of course it doesn't need to be. People will, yeah. will pick it up. Is it going to be the thing that sells 200,000 copies? Probably not. Can you launch an entire universe off of it? Ultimately, I don't think they could. <laughs> and I love this as a series of trades. I really do. I love this as a series of trades. Reading this and like, because it reads real fast, uh, except when it reads really slow, right? The pages that feel like a Twilight book about a young lesbian who loves basketball are a she's little... Not, she's not a young lesbian. She's 35 years old. She herself has two children and has just realized I've been living a lie this whole time. Uh, the design on Mayday Parker, I will never for a single moment under... Again, it's like the J2 thing. You do not understand how children work. Yeah, I She do. looks like Nancy McKeon in the later seasons of Facts of Life. And it's just like, Bill Sienkiewicz was not the guy to draw young, cool, edgy Britney Spears kids. I think they I happen. think they thought they were giving us T-Boss. Like, I, you know, I saw the short hair and the overalls and I was like, this is who they think they were giving us. It, it, oh, they did not. White TLC. That's exactly yeah. what Spider-Man needed. Yes, precisely. So, man, I love that. Okay. Well, speaking of things that totally missed the point, Marvel had a second major attempt at forming another universe. And this was, of course, the new universe. And the new universe was 1986's, like, okay. So for everything that is that good, there must also be a thing that is that bad. Otherwise, the thing that's that good doesn't have anything to balance it out on the cosmic spectrum. And if 1986 gave us Born Again and Electra Assassin, it also gave us New Universe. And New Universe was a gritty, realistic take. And their main quote was, uh, it's the world outside your window. That was their whole thing. And a quote from Archie Goodwin is, there would be no hidden races, gods, mythological beings, magic, or super technology, which was a rule <laughs> immediately broken by all of the titles. And it's so strange because time also operated in real time. Every month of publishing was a month of the book. And it, had you had any experience with New Universe? No, my first experience of New Universe was Warren Ellis did New a thing Universal. with the, yeah. La Roca. I read that, thought it was completely bewildering and kind of forgot about it before I even remembered what I was reading. And then it was in the Hickman stuff. Yeah. And that is when I had to sort of go back and sort of try and understand if I'd thrown out a really brilliant concept. And that's why I laugh so hard when it's like the world outside your window, because the new universe stuff that Hickman picks up is so cosmologically insane on a degree that even Marvel regular most of the time does not reach that the idea that the base concept was like, this is just normal stuff is fucking hilarious. Well, that's actually the problem. They went with this whole, it's the world outside your window. It's the normal day that you look at. And they were like, oh, this won't have superheroes. It'll just have gritty stories. And so they didn't realize that what's actually fascinating about a universe is watching it come into being, right? In whatever form it's going to be. You want to see a transformation moment. And there were a handful of titles that ran more than a year and then a handful that ran less. 
Plus, we had DP7, which ran 32 issues plus an annual. Justice, which I want to say ran 32 issues, but I need to point out that like the first 12 are revealed to be a hallucination. And then from then on, the book is about a serial killer. <laughs> and the fuck. And the fuck. And then there's Kickers Incorporated. <laughs> it's like hard to get through that book's name. Kickers Incorporated, which in 1986, that book that I'm already saying the name is kind of like, ooh, is by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. Ron Friends Kick being Tom DeFalco's. Kicking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a kickist. <laughs> I'm the kickiest. My friends and I are kind of like, you want to have a kicky? All the time. So now if you guys thought that Kickers Incorporated was a little tough, and like I'm not mocking the material, and names change and things that make a good name change. In retrospect now, Kickers Incorporated, it's... <laughs> It's just not a name that's aged well. That's all, right? Mark Hazard, Merc, ran 12 issues plus an annual. Nightmask ran 12 issues. Cyforce got the DP7 treatment and ran 32 issues plus an annual. Man, these names are tough. So then comes the toughest name. It's a real toughie. We have Spitfire and the Troubleshooters for seven issues, which becomes Spitfire for eight and nine, and then becomes Codename Spitfire for issues 10 through 13. And then lastly, we have Starbrand, which after I think issue 12 became the star brand and it also received an annual and ran a total of 19 issues for all that we're saying the world outside your window no no it was always going to be that they were all secretly related to a paranormal event yeah that paranormal event was called the white event which would also be a major focus of new universal now i have an amazing quote from the wikipedia and please understand that i think that wikipedia is as scientifically accurate a source as my foot is a telephone so i'm not looking for exact Actitude here, but if this, you know, this does match the facts. So, in an effort to save the line, DeFalco, now Marvel's editor in chief, Grunewald, referring to Mark Grunewald, John Byrne, and editor Howard Mackey ended up removing some of the more fantastic elements from it and, in a few cases, doing radical revamps. Byrne signed up to write and do breakdowns on the Star brand, altering the series to focus less on Kevin Connell and more on the power of the object itself. This began initially with the idea of having Ken Connell go public with his identity as Starbrand. Similarly, the premise of Justice was revealed to be a hallucination that had artificially induced the title's protagonist by another paranormal, and then from this point on, he's a serial killer who targets paranormals who abuse their powers. I don't, okay. Some of the characters whose titles had been cancelled return as backup features. How do you say in an effort to save the line, right? But then, there's a conflicting quote a little bit further down the wiki that says, despite all of this, the imprint was discontinued in 1989 after a total of 170 comics had been published. That's 170 comics in three years. The Spider-Girl MC2 universe does 225 in more than a decade. So New Universe really churned them out. Now, it follows with, readers often assumed that the New Universe had suffered from poor sales, but in fact, all series were solidly profitable right up until their cancellation. The actual reason for discontinuing the line was that with Marvel Comics in one of its most successful eras, it was felt that the staff and production resources would be better used on new, more promising series. I don't know who to believe there. That the line was so rough it needed saving or that it was thriving. But either way, it does not sound like the new universe worked out so well. And the proof is kind of in the retrospective. We don't really look back on that era of the new universe with any kind of fondness 
any of the work that has been done to pull that stuff into modern times has been an insane feat of narrative wizardry on the like level that only Jonathan Hickman can do. This is not something that gave us like the iconic anything. They've gone and made it iconic since. Right. It's the iconicness of Starbrand only came out of Hickman's Infinity, Secret Wars, all of that stuff and has developed since then, but nothing about it at the time is anything we remember fondly. Well, but speaking of things that people remember fondly, I do want to point out that there is a secret connection between New Universe and your favorite, 2099. So let's start with what 2099 is. 2099 began as Stan Lee and John Byrne doing The World of Tomorrow. Then they changed the name to Marvel 2093 as it was meant to be 100 years later and decided that 2099, you know, just sounded more edgy and 90s. And I get it. It does. Now, the series was meant to depict one possible future of the MU, but of course, throughout the years, they've said it's definitive or it's not the definitive. Now, obviously, it can't be the definitive because it can't, but it also has its own Earth numbering, so it definitely can't just be our future. Anyway, the big problem with 2099 wasn't that it wasn't good, it's that it all wasn't good. Some of it was very good, and some of it was very uneven. Now, the sales were uneven across the line, and what many people don't realize is that 2099 had like an overarching story through all of the titles, including President Doom, which led to all of the books getting an AD symbol. Now, I don't know if you saw it in my notes. Did you see when 2099 actually ended? No. Okay. March 1998. Yeah, I guess that's right. That no, that seems like too late or too four years too late for me. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, like the X-Men stuff had gotten unreadable long before that, but there were really popular, like Punisher 2099 and Spider-Man 2099 were really popular. So that's a really interesting discussion. Now, they were and some of them remained popular way through the end. But Punisher 2099 ultimately became a really low seller and they used a line-wide event to kill it off. Now, I don't want to count the one-shots because the one-shots are uncountable. There were 2099, 2099 one-shots. But the core titles were 2099 Unlimited, which ran for 10 issues, 2099 World of Tomorrow, which ran for 8, Fantastic Four 2099, and Doom 2099 kind of have numbers you wouldn't expect. Doom 2099 ran for 44 issues, while Fantastic Four 2099 never clicked with fans and only ran for eight. Ghost Rider 2099 ran for 25, whereas Hulk 2099 really never got off the ground at 10. Punisher 2099 and Ravage 2099 ran 34 and 33 respectively, and it's of note that Ravage began as Stan Lee's 2099 title, and he jumped off after just a handful of issues. Spider-Man 2099 is, of course, the big one, running 46 issues plus an annual, several specials. Now, many people People do fondly remember X-Men 2099, which ran 35 issues, plus a special and then another special called Oasis. But they might not remember the short-lived six-issue X-Nation partner series that was by popular demand. You know, at, at times, 2099 had viable hits with Spider-Man and X-Men. It's that everything else kind of started to pull on it after a while. And the stories could be good, but it was immediately clear that the universe was not good. This was not an alternative to the 616 where you were going to be interested in these big events that the overarching stories that were happening. You were into X-Men 2099 because the characters were kind of cool and you wanted to know what was happening there. But it wasn't like, you know, you would read standard X-Men books and then discover, you know, a Daredevil crossover and start to get into Daredevil. It was really difficult to get into the universe as a whole. Now, I love 
that you say that because that really was the case. Originally, there were only two points of intersection. Funny enough, Daredevil is one of the heroes who met someone from 2099 in an issue of Fantastic Four. Additionally, there was a Spider-Man meets Spider-Man one shot where they flip places and that was very popular, but two books is not enough to sustain a line and 2099 Manifest Destiny ended the series in 1998. Hey, wait a minute. What if 105 came out in January of 1998 and the line kicked off in November of 1998? I can't help but feel they said we have room for one line that takes place in an artificial future that we can't sustain. So yeah, I mean, or, you know, the flip side of it, whoops, this, this attempt is tanking quick, churn another one out as quickly as possible. Oh yeah. And they did. They did before it even ended because we can't really say that the only attempts to reboot the Marvel universe involve whole new character sets. While many do one particular, very divisive one featured everybody's favorite characters. Heroes Reborn was one fucking fuck of a fuck. And you know, the Jason Aaron Heroes Reborn that we covered on this show that I love so much was so silly. And like, you know, like a many Jason Aaron stories to accept how great the great emotional stuff is, you kind of have to accept the ridiculous. And I feel that for many people, a vast majority of the original Heroes Reborn kind of lacked some of that emotional realism. From the wiki, for this reworking, Marvel farmed out the properties to some of their former freelance artists who had ceased working for the company in order to form Image Comics. Of course, they're talking about the image boom that took place back in the early 90s, where all of the biggest names left everybody and formed their own company. Here we see Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, who had Wildstorm and Extreme Studios, farmed out Fantastic Four and Iron Man and Avengers and Captain America, respectively. Now, I don't know if it's actually Marvel's claim of low sales on Captain America that they fired Liefeld. I think it was just the negative criticism for how bad the art was received. Genuinely. Yeah, I mean, it's that shot of his body, that side profile of his body that is just a refrigerator box. It's so reminded us all the time when we didn't need it. What about Rob Liefeld was actually not that great. And, you know, we got caught up in the moment in the early 90s X-Force boom. And we're like, oh, this guy. But once you step away from it for a second and then are put back in front of it, it just, oh God, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It does. It stings. Like, that's the problem, I think. And ultimately, Marvel did feel the same way, asking Jim Lee to take over all of the titles. And he did for a while. And then ultimately, they were like, if we keep this contract going, you need to be even more hands-on. And he was like, no, thank you. So instead, the titles all got an additional 13th issue, despite all of the contracts being for 12. This was written by another Gen X veteran, James Robinson, who would write World War III, which included Marvel and Wildstorm properties. Very exciting. And then after that, everybody came back in Heroes Reborn The Return by, hey, Peter David and once again, Salvador La Roca. So Salvador La Roca did New Universal with Warren Ellis and Peter David did Spider-Man 2099. This is getting to be creepy. It's like we're saying all the same names are responsible for all the same stuff all the time and that is why a number of these attempts don't go anywhere because it's the same new thing every time company men of course it is of note that any discussion of attempts to create a second universe if you don't discuss the ultimate universe you're kind of being a joke it is without a doubt the most successful any company has ever been with a project like this my notes literally say for all this vaunted my notes are so complete my notes literally say the ultimate universe 
universe lol because what else can you say ultimate spider-man is to this day one of the most legendary comic runs of all time and to be one of the most legendary 20 years later that's a really unique distinction that's enough time for people to find all of the flaws in your work that's enough time for people to have forgotten you for better things but ultimate spider-man is the standard miles morales might be the most significant character to come out of marvel outside of kamala khan in decades there is a miles morales video game (laughs) yeah were you an ultimate guy i was yeah i had been sort of away from the x-men for a while and picked back up during the morrison run and it was really because i was in love with the invisibles and i was just kind of playing around with like as an adult am i into comics what can i sort of find my way into and eventually i just found out i missed comics i missed the x-men and i went back to reading them at a time where you know some stuff was great some stuff wasn't and the ultimates got brought to my attention i still think the first three volumes of ultimate x-men are really solid okay if you are really saying like i want to take the essential the quintessence of these characters and make something current i think it succeeded in that yes absolutely i don't think that you know the writing didn't blow my mind or anything but as a project as a reboot project i thought it succeeded in that basic goal incredibly well i have some relationship problems with mark millar's work yes so i think that's always kept me back a little bit i think one of the most interesting things is the decline of the ultimate universe is such a steep and severe trajectory that is a little difficult to miss you know with bendis in charge of ultimate spider-man you had over on this side of the aisle millar in charge of the ultimates and ultimate x-men and that's kind of a double whammy for then millar to leave ultimates and hitch to then leave ultimates and yet that's when things got gritty and violent is kind of interesting you know for many people the ultimates three and ultimatum and the shift to ultimate comics really marked a huge mistake i think it actually chases back a little bit further everybody here knows that i'm a big big mike carey fan but ultimate fantastic four's crossover as a fake out for me was the first moment where they put the quality of not contaminating the ultimate universe in jeopardy i think you're absolutely correct about that i think the problem the the root problem the seed of the rot goes back even further than that and it is in this promise that we're going to do this all again and there's not going to be any complex continuity we're going to be able to onload new people which is a promise that you can never keep never ever cannot figure out how to get people excited about complex continuity and make that an asset instead of something that you're promising that people won't have to deal with your project will have failed before it begins and you know bendis did an amazing job some fantastic stories in ultimate spider-man but six issues in it has its own continuity that is going to get complicated and they're still launching books with that idea that like this is different you are not going to have the same problems that you have with our 30 year old titles yes you are you're always going to they're not problems they are features they're not bugs figure out how to sell them don't promise something you can't deliver and that's one of the reasons that i love that we recently covered on you know of course the partner show to this excess for podcast we recently covered iron fist by Alyssa wong and i specifically commented as we were prepping for this iron fist did this right there's a ton of backstory it's a character that people aren't even familiar with who's got backstory so now she's got to explain the backstory for you guys to know this character you know nothing about even though you have 30 issues you can pick from right now and then 
on top of it, she still manages to weave in all of the elements that make Iron Fist Iron Fist. So, you know, I think when you're talking about the difference between you don't need the baggage continuity and you do, it really is about celebrating the baggage continuity. Yeah, you're not going to suddenly make somebody a comic book reader who hates the idea of what comics are. You can't sell to that person. These are comic books. Give up on them and, you know, work on the MCU. That's that's what those people will get into. And that's also completely fine. But this idea that, like, we have this shameful albatross around our necks, which is the work that dozens of creators have done over decades, is a feature. It's not a bug. Sell it or accept that some people aren't going to buy it. Not every product can be universal. I completely agree. And that's one of the reasons that maybe perhaps the Ultimate Universe was never for me. Because once Bendis got going, right, you had, and this was just like a little a little cursory glance that I really wasn't a big Ultimate Universe person. So uh, I have a, a long running comic book series, Kid Riot, which uh, second volume Riot Squad. So, you know, we've got like some 50 issues and our main artist, Taryn, he is a huge Ultimate Spider-Man person. And he would explain to me that like, oh, well, when you, you should get it in the hardcovers though because that puts like ultimate six where it goes and it puts like ultimate this and that and the annuals and i'm like what the fuck and like i thought this was supposed to be easy and then i'm like looking a little bit more into it and i'm like ooh, ultimate iron man oh arson scott Carter. and then i'm like oh so poorly received it is ultimately revealed to be an in-universe tv show about iron man instead of being the actual iron man story and like the changes between Thor in Malar and Hitch's Ultimates and then the new iteration of Thor, which don't get me wrong, avoiding Thor spoilers as best I can. Like that hammer showing up in Thor is one of the greatest moments in comic book history, bar none ever. It is. Yeah. So I love that moment. And I think that there's so much about Ultimate Universe that gets so messy. And like, I love Squadron Supreme. Speaking of AUs, my precious Supreme Power and Squadron Supreme by JMS, who was responsible for the reboot on Thor, responsible for the reboot on Spider-Man that picked the book back up sales-wise, right? That, you know, that crossed over with the Ultimate Universe in Ultimate Power, which I'm still not sure how to read, and I have the whole thing. One of my favorite details from the Ultimate Universe that speaks to what I liked about it and what I hated about it is Spider-Woman, Jessica Drew, is just another clone of Peter Parker that was made female, and it's a neat thing but like already having said that that is a continuity twister that you know again like this just writers are going to write what they write and it's always going to get complicated there are some really cool ideas and there are so many moments in the ultimate universe that you're like that's great writing it's not an alternative to the same type of writing that happens in the 616 but it's cool I, I very much agree it could never replace it for me and one of the things that they noticed very quickly as the ultimate universe was succeeding was maybe it's just easier to do this with the original properties and you got JMS Thor and you got JMS Spider-Man you got New X-Men by Grant Morrison you got Bendis's New Avengers which of course begat Alan Heinberg's Young Avengers you had reimaginings of the Fantastic Four by Jonathan Hickman you had so many things where they said what if we take this and we make it a money maker and Bendis's Daredevil you know it might be shades of Miller but it's still very unique 
Geek Shades. So I think one of the big problems that MC2 faced right away is what we just said. If you want to tell me that the Uncanny 360 team and the future timeline that creates is the same thing as the new X-Men team, no, no way. Absolutely no way. And that's just about a year later. That's 394 with the, you know, really famous cover of Gene and Logan making out. And you got Poptopia. And then before you know it, you're at the 400s and Mystique is, hey, you know what? Thinking about it, maybe we should revisit Poptopia at some point because somebody does some fucked up shit to Banshee and Mystique's out there trying to kill people and there's an X-Corporation. Maybe my precious Poptopia Uncanny is better than we remember. I could talk about it all day. But what I want to talk about a little bit more is the setup for our MC2 read. You know, it's so funny because we were originally not going to do this episode, but you know, TK being the smartest big brother's ever been was like, there's so many notes here. Maybe there's a conversation to be had. And you know, I'm skipping tons of this, like in my notes. And there's still so much to talk about that goes into the trajectory that led us to MC2. You know, when you think about the creators like Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends, they worked on every fucking property at Marvel. You know, Pat O'Leaf, Ron Lim, maybe not as many, but still a significant number of works. These aren't slouches. It's not that Marvel brought in their worst guns. It's just that Marvel brought in not the right people to launch a young book. I mean, it literally only captured me for one year at 12. And then all of a sudden I was like, boys, give me boys, right? Like you were already there. So it's really funny that we haven't even started talking about MC2 as a as a line. And we're already talking about a number of its failings. Yeah, because, you know, as we talked about with the Ultimates, they were kind of baked in. This is what we're seeing at the time of MC2 is comics as a business and as a medium is changing. And MC2 is one of the last through lines of the same people, the same culture that started all these books and started all these stories, passing down from one person to the next in a very direct connection. DeFalco is one of those people. He is tied to the people that came before him very directly. He is tied to the company Marvel Comics. He is tied to Marvel as it was. And Marvel is at a point right now where it needs to change, not just in terms of like, we need a a change in story ideas. We need a fundamental change in what's going on in comics on a number of levels. And DeFalco simply was not that person. It doesn't mean he's a bad writer. It doesn't mean he doesn't have good ideas. It just means he can't be responsible for structural change in how comics and its readers interact. That came later. And uh, you're blowing me away because I'm going to add some stuff that's not in my notes. And it references Daredevil by Bendis yet again. It's important to note that we said a little bit a while ago in this episode that Daredevil 380 was released at the same time as Spider-Girl 1. Now, Daredevil 380 was the final issue of the original series, and it closed out that run, which was followed by Kevin Smith's relaunch under the Marvel Knights imprint. The Marvel Knights imprint was another attempt to farm out major characters, much like Heroes Reborn, but instead they used a guy named uh, Joey Q and his studio, and Joe Quesada's success with the Marvel Knights imprint is literally what got him editor-in-chief. Now, to mention a thing that many people don't realize that Daredevil did with an issue zero back in Kevin Smith's run, so we're talking 1998-1999, there was an online digital issue, and that was Joe Quesada's thinking back around this time. So, yeah, you're really talking about exactly what it was they saw these guys were not thinking about the next 
thing. And then they saw someone who was. And that's, I think, in many ways, why one of the things we have to discuss is that Spider-Girl was almost canceled, like, seriously, no less than four or five times. And I think it's because Joey Q felt like he inherited a mess that he didn't want. I think you are probably exactly right about that. And I think that he did not see anything in there that was something that his way of thinking about comics could capitalize on. Oh, yeah. There's just nothing about it that... And actually, it turns out there are a few things that are going to come much later with some distance, and a lot of it is just kind of nostalgia. Yeah, But there really wasn't anything for him or the crew that he was bringing in or the new, the real new ideas that were starting to come out that was like, we can, we can work with this. We can make something out of this. And it's so funny because we're talking about a world where comics is changing. And I worked at a comic shop in 04 and 05. And one of the big things was as I worked there, the trade piles got higher and higher. And we had to clear out more and more space for more and more trades. And it went from the trade wall to the trade walls to the trade room and then it was trade subscription and we really transformed in that year and even though Spider-Girl launched in 1998 Spider-Girl launched in a world where Marvel was doing reprinting issues 0 through 2 in a special big guy which they would occasionally do for the next years you know they did it with NYX which I'll never forget the time when they were like reprinting the massively popular NYX 1 through 3 and I'm like you guys know that it's not until 4 so you know the trades don't start till By the point at which Spider-Girl enters Digest, we are on issue 75 of Spider-Girl. That entire universe has come and gone, like completely. And just to put a couple of numbers to some things, I've built out a vague timeline and without reading the whole thing, this universe roughly launched in October of 1998. Now, Wizard was so about this. Wizard released an issue zero for one title in January of 1999. That would be Wild Thing, Wolverine and Elektra's Daughter. Another thing could have only been birthed of this era. And then there was Spider-Girl 1 Half, which both of these do see release in the trades. Spider-Girl 1 Half is released in October of 1999, celebrating the one-year anniversary of the MC2 imprint. Now, it turns out all of these were intended to be 12-issue maxi series, but Spider-Girl was so popular, they kept her running. And after they ended J2 and A Next with issue 12, I just realized J2, A, Next. They have the same name, letter, the thing that follows. Interesting. They launched Fantastic Five and Wild Thing, both of which end with issue five. Now, there would be two three-issue miniseries in 2000, running till the beginning of 2001, The Buzz and Dark Devil. But after that, it's just Spider-Girl. And she runs for so long that in January of 2002, with her 40th issue of her properly numbered series, but her 42nd issue overall, Spider-Girl overtakes the total number of issues of all other MC2 titles combined. That's insane. Now, Tom DeFalco, who we can't stop saying his name, like at some point, I'm just gonna have to start breaking out into Rock Me Amadeus because I'm saying Falco so much, right? Falcon Punch. So Sean McKeever actually wrote a fill-in issue, Sean McKeever of Sentinel fame. Those of you who might not realize that Runaways was actually part of an era of attempting to bring in younger readers to Marvel (laughs) called Marvel Tsunami, which gave us the birth of the great Joe Chen cover, as well as Runaways 
Blaze, Mystique, Sentinel. I feel like I'm forgetting one or two Tsunami books, but they were all kind of cute, kind of fun. And Sean McKeever was responsible for Sentinel, which was a great book, super great. And Marvel gave it a number of tries, just never caught on, but certainly wasn't Sean McKeever's fault. Now, we wouldn't get more MC2 tie-ins until the, like, if you look at the numbers, it is unfucking believable how successful Last Hero Standing was. They give Spider-Girl a weekly event, her own Secret Wars, in August of 05. And like, I worked at a comic shop in August of 05. We could not keep this book on the shelf because we didn't expect to have to order that many. And it like, it the worst selling issue of this miniseries outsells the best selling issue of Spider-Girl for like two years on either side of it. So of course, you know what they had to do. Do it again. And you know what happened? It tanked. And last planet standing sells nothing. And it and Spider-Girl both end. Spider-Girl with issue 100, last planet standing with issue five. It was a miniseries. In September of 06, there's a second era which sees 30 issues of Amazing Spider-Girl plus an issue zero, five issues of A Next, five issues of Fantastic Five, plus five issues of American Dream. But ultimately, nothing can save the line. And come May of 09, Spider-Girl sees Amazing Spider-Girl end publication with issue 30. But of course, this is not the end of the MC2 universe. We've talked about a lot of things, but what haven't we talked about? That's right. What if somebody said, Tom DeFalco, if someone gave you the opportunity to bridge when you started the MC2 to the beginning of the MC2 in the Marvel Universe, would you tell those stories? And he said, well, fuck yes, I would. And we got Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man. And Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man tells how to bridge the Marvel Universe from when MC2 started to the start of MC2. This ran in the background of a Spider-Man family. And TK, do you know what happened then, TK? Fans demanded they bring Spider-Girl back. So they canceled Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man and replaced it with more Spider-Girl. Now, you called it. Instead, they launched it as Spectacular Spider-Girl Online Exclusives. And she ran 11 online exclusive issues before fan demand was so popular, she got moved into Spider-Man Family and Web of Spider-Man. And they said, no fucking more! And they gave Tom DeFalco a four-issue miniseries, Spectacular Spider-Girl, from July of 2010 to October 2010. And then they released Spider-Girl The End. And that was it for a minute. <laughs> because that's when they said, let's bring her back. And we got Secret Wars, then we got Spider-Verse, and uh, it, you know, as I was doing research, I'm like, oh, but she can't be important. The MC2 universe is so central to a bunch of spider crossovers. These characters are major players in super multiversal destiny stories. These characters, these characters, even crazier, they had Tom DeFalco come back to write some of these stories. So I think what I'm trying to say is the MC2 universe can't be stopped, no matter how few people wanted it in the first place. And I say that as someone who did. <laughs> so I I just read a lot of notes. How do you feel having heard everything we just talked about as we set out on this journey? <sighs> I mean, it, it is proof that there is something there. Like, there's something here worth paying attention to. I don't know what we'll be able to take away from it and what we'll be able to sort of understand about the nature of truly great characters. Because even after hearing all this, I still don't feel like Mayday Parker is one of them. And yet, clearly, there is something important that we're, we're going to dig into. Because people keep coming back to her. Yeah. And it's like 
like writers. It's not like it's not like, you know, Nico goes up to his comic shop and is like, hey, where's the new Spider-Girl issue, bruh? <laughs> and they're like, gotta write to Marvel. And I write to Marvel and I'm like, bruh, where's Spider-Girl? It's like, no, she's in Spider-Verse and she's in Secret Wars. And like, she plays a, a significant role. She gets ongoing minis, ongoing minis. You know, that's such a such a stupid thing to say. But like, there are some sort of regular minis that occur within like spider cycles, right? You know, spider get in, Spider-Verse, spider too many spider titles. And she appears in those regular cycle of minis. So this is a character that has very real possibility to have somebody famous voicing them in yes. an animated spider movie. <laughs> that's insane. She could be in Spider-Verse. She could be into the Spider-Verse 2 and 3. Yeah. And she could be like a person person. Yeah. And it, I would be fine with it. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things, though, that I really do want, and I feel kind of bad saying it, is I want to get the stink of the late 90s off of her. Yeah. Because one of the things that this book felt like from moment one was the Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire in a very, we're trying to capture, like, it's not like film quality. It's not color scheme. And maybe it's the palpability of like a tasteable zeitgeist when a certain color hits your memory in just the right way. But like, there's kind of like a blah and like a brown and kind of like a, mm, to even the stuff I love about like the very Brady sequel and like the Spider-Man movies, like that certain 1996 to 2002, there's a heaviness that hangs on a lot of that media that I feel like this carries with it in abundance. It's... The idea of give me a ton of low quality stuff and let me sift through it to find the good stuff worth doing, which now like, you know, with things like YouTube, anybody can make a video series and a thousand of them are going to be terrible and one's going to be interesting and we'll sift through to find it. In 1996, not anybody could make a series, but a lot of people were behaving as though their ideas didn't really matter. Just let me throw anything out there. So you got all this stuff that was really low quality and yet it was the only option for what it was. There's a rote condition to it, right? Like one of the things that birthed the Sentai machine in the United States was a need to use a factory reset on every episode so that you didn't feel contaminated by inability to use footage. And, you know, that's how you don't realize that it's the wrong costumes for the wrong Rangers for so long. And, you know, as a guy who is, you know, a big Jew Ranger guy, like, you know, these are shows that I really love, you know, I want to recognize the good in them, but I still see how they had to follow a beat sheet because they were beholden to existing footage. And that playing back into comics is actually really dangerous because dangerous, dangerous maybe is a severe word, but comics weren't beholden by existing footage. They could be whatever they wanted. So there was no reason to feel locked in. And certainly Marvel was taking some chances at this time here and there. They were doing things like Marvel The Lost Generation which had a backward countdown number, which again, just like Grant Morrison, Invisibles Volume 3, right? there was also stuff like Fantastic Four, Silver Surfer, Dominion Factor, where it was multiple minis covering the same story, but like you read the, the three Fantastic Four issues and the three Silver Surfer issues, but then like you could cross them over together, but they could still read separately, like stuff like that. So they were still taking chances, but you know, not in the way that we're talking about. Yeah, that's totally true. So the last thing I really want to bring up is we've talked a lot about 
about the arc of these sagas, the overall kind of success or failure of these lines as they exist. And it is without need to say that Spider-Girl, of course, has the best-selling issue of the MC2 line with her debut issue, number one. Not quite her debut issue, I guess. So her eponymous debut issue with spider Hey, that makes her like Spider-Man because he debuted in Amazing Fantasy. So like, it's cute that she debuted in What If. Okay. So Spider-Girl's best-selling issue is 62,805 copies, man, back to the number, right? When the MC2 line finally throws in the towel, Spider-Girl's final regular issue of publication sees sales of just 11,810 units. Spider-Girl the End kind of got a spike from being a The End title, selling about 16,000. But the books that contain Spider-Girl go as low as Spider-Man Family selling just over 7,000 copies. Now, things are pretty dire on the other titles as well. American Dream, the final non-Spider-Girl issue of the Spider-Girl MC2 universe, sells just over 10,000 cops. It's like the little engine that could, but it actually can't. But it is it can't. somehow It actually can't. <laughs> it's not like the engine's actually running. It just found a hill and yes. it's just going downward. But it's not stopping somehow. It's No one's stopping it either right. is the thing. Like, there is nothing stopping the trajectory of Spider-Girl up through her ending. And it's so funny because a lot of the titles of her arcs are kind of generic at first. They're like Avenging Allies and Endgame because that is a generic title, guys. Yep. I'm sorry, Russos, because I'm sure they're watching. So, <laughs> you know, and then it's stuff like Games Villains Play. But by the end, the titles of these stories are like Brand New May, May Break. Yikes. So we do wind up in a position where by the end, this was an older crew of creators telling an older story as it approached kind of a place where we maybe didn't need it anymore. And, you know, I don't know that the ultimate universe proves that that's not true. I think the ultimate universe proved there were some really cool ideas left to say. But the fact that by Secret Wars, the ultimate universe was done. You know, the MC2 line certainly only running 225 issues over 12 years. Don't get me wrong, Ultimate Spider-Man ran 225 issues in 15 years. So I'm not pretending that we can even compare these two things. This is, once again, my foot is not a shoe. But I meant phone. But I just said rubber band back to that earlier joke. Thwip, thwip. That was me just thwipping the earlier joke to myself. Pulling it back in. Reel it in. Reeling it. Reeling it real fast. I'm really excited to do this. I've already read the first like 30 or something in preparation. And I've done my notes on the first like 19 or whatever. First 20 and god some of these are bad and yeah. like they're objectively bad like yeah, i bad. feel like if i sat down with the creators they would say yeah this was a swing and a miss because it's exactly what you said they were churning out as much as they could there was like a sense that like if we just keep making the art someone will buy it but you know the me that goes to the gym every morning that you know messages you my bench records that mentions you know that messages you oh i hit this new pr that guy can still remember seeing that scene of J2 in the bathroom becoming a 
Falcon Colossus and not knowing what to do with the many reactions it caused. And part of me still remembers like, spoiler alert, the reveal of who the first Venom host is in this Spider-Girl mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. That issue is the best thing in this first 20 issues. Yeah, that is like such a right fucking fraught issue. It's taut as hell. It is exciting. It is clever. And that issue, I could give that to anybody and they would be like, yeah, okay, this might not be the best universe, but I get this, right? Like everybody doesn't love Desperate Housewives, but anybody can appreciate Bang, okay? So it's sort of that, you know, it's whereas like, I kind of feel like everybody could find something they love about Twin Peaks, but I can't get most people to find anything to like about Firewalk with me. It's one of those things where you got to already be into Twin Peaks to like Firewalk with me. The story where J2 shows us how to self-defend from his bully by transforming into the juggernaut and nearly killing the guy. Um, that one, that one does not feel like one I could just pull off the shelf. That's kind of like a fire walk with me. That's like, are you already in this far? Then this is probably something you enjoy, but this is not a surface grab. The, what am I trying to say here? What it just, what it comes down to is like, man, ideas are so cool. And it's so great to have new ideas or spins on old ideas that feel new. It is so cool to find every single facet of the infinite gem that is a character in comic books. It does not mean once you have found it, you should commit it to any form of permanent publication and try and give it out to the world. But, you know, if nothing else, it gives us an opportunity. If it's there, we can play around with it a little bit and maybe find something that, even though I feel like it never should have been shown to you, now that it's here, we're gonna show it to you again. Because here's the thing. If we had gotten 12 maxis, I meant 12 issues, but yeah, if we got in 12 maxis, 12 <laughs> separate 12 issue series, I probably would have been a little bit more fulfilled yeah. if it had changed and bounced around, but it also would have taken new characters. I do want to make one other comparison. I brought up how I felt Alyssa Wong's Iron Fist channeled this MC2 spirit with a ton of BDE. But conversely, I can't speak to whether or not Vita ever read Spider-Girl numbers whatever, but Vita Ayala's Children of the Atom, and I only say that it belongs to one creator as opposed to as well as the many incredible artists that were attached to it because it was so many incredible artists. It actually has a lot that reminds me of this. There's like edgy infighting and basketball and some amount of coming of age and storytelling about powers and there's a classic feel to the art and a throwback atmosphere. So while I don't know that I can speak to that that's definitely their experience, it does kind of line up in some ways that maybe this would have been around a time they were reading. And if not, this is just one of those synergistic things where eventually, because whether or not this is Tom DeFalco's shining moment, Tom DeFalco is a legend and is amazing and has done a lot of incredible things. So it could just be two great minds reaching the same ideas. But there is something that I do see channeled in books today from these pages, for sure. Yeah, I think you are absolutely correct about that. And writers are always going to look at a character or at a property or at a little corner of the Marvel Universe and not just put their own spin on it like uh, I'm just going to write my Daredevil story, but really try and pull something and say, I want to create a truly unique attempt at examining the essential qualities of a spider person, of an X person. And a lot of times they're going to look like this. It's a it's a new character. It's a new version of the universe. And let's see what we can play around 
with from there. I love that. And I can't wait to play around this more with you or play around you more with this, play around more with you, whichever one gets me to get to play with you all the time. So I can't wait to do that. And until we do, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And as always, you guys can find me and TK as well over on X's for Podcast, where we're celebrating over 300 amazing episodes talking about the X-Men and now the Marvel Universe at large. You guys can also find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And don't forget, I can't believe I get to say this, but you guys can check me out in the upcoming Young Men in Love comic anthology featuring myself and incredible talents like Anthony Oliveira, Terry Bloss, Cena Grace, Joe Glass, and more. You guys can order that from Diamond Comics using APR 22-1275 or from your local LCS. And until next time, when we finally dive into the first volume of all three titles, that's Spider-Girl 0 through 5, J2 1 through 6, and A Next 1 through 6. We'll see ya. Bye. Bye.